I've got, I'm not going to lie, Ruby, but I've got a few films because it's been a little while because I was ill mm. week. So I obviously I watched a few. So I've got about 13 or 14 films, but I assure you that some Blimey of them will not take more than 30 seconds to speak of because they're okay. not very, very good. All right. I've heard of uh, films there, like that before. There's no, there's no, a, a couple, I will say a couple, I flat out turned off. Um, and what one film, uh, it was a Michael Dudikoff film called Virtual Assassin with one S. That's how it comes up on Amazon. Uh, I, got, I was really enjoying it. I got about 20 minutes in and it was, had everything, you know, really bad future tech, a ridiculous soundtrack, Michael Dudikoff. And it even had a Duke Nukem sound effect when doors opened and then I stopped wow. after 20 minutes. And when I went back to it the next day, it had gone off like free prime and it was four quid to rent. No, mm. no, no, not happening. <laughs> I've heard, I, 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 I none spring to mind at this particular moment, but I've heard a, a lot of like cheap sci-fi films um, sampled uh, Doom, the original Doom, like the monster sounds from that. We've come across a couple, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, I'm trying to see what it was now, the sound effect from Doom. Yeah, they're just so. I never remember which ones they are because it, it, because it's just in the background. You just hear, oh yeah, that's the sound of the you know the pink imp things. Yeah, uh, and it's like yeah, okay, and you kind of you just think that's lazy, but you can move on, I guess. But mm, I, I seem to remember actually that the the way they got those sound effects got them in some quite weird ways. Like they got a sound of a giraffe or something like that and slowed it down. Was one of them. Really? Um, That's cool. Yeah. So, uh, but it's just weird. The idea of a film like 15, 20 years later just sampling a 1993 video game. <laughs> yeah, like from the well, shareware version. <laughs> yeah, everything from the first episode. Um, well, and if they were playing Strife, that should, that would be where they should have stopped as well. Um, <laughs> ofs. Um, so, if you, if you, obviously, mine is the usual blunderbuss approach. For you, have you got a specific theme, or is it just just whatever no, you fancy? It's pretty, but it's, it's very varied this this time around. Yeah. Um, so I'll start with one I literally just watched today. But um, but is there anything else we need to go through before that? I mean, are the cops ha- drying up? Or? No, no, no. I have managed to. I have got my uh, machine working again so I can give that a kick and see what title it pops us out with. But first of all, um, we are sponsored this this week uh, by a new podcast called An Ocean of Tears. So um, I'll just chuck that on. They sent me a file, so I'll chuck that on and then we can go into the, um, the random name generator. Sure. Hello and welcome to the brand new podcast an ocean of tears. This is a podcast designed for those of you that feel the need to weep but can't. The perfect podcast. You don't need to weep. We'll weep for you. An ocean of tears. 
we weep for you. That's quite... <laughs> well, that... Um, that I mean, that, that definitely fills a niche, I suppose. Not a niche I've ever particularly heard of, but, I mean, there must be people out there who are stifled in some way in their ability to weep, and I think that could be just a thing. I suppose... Soft Edinburgh tones of the presenter... <laughs> I think I think with so many podcasts, I mean, I know we are just another one, a drop in the ocean of tears, but I suppose you have to have these specific niches to fill. And I'm trying to think of what mindset I'd be in to listen to that, because if you, I'm trying to think of what situation I'd need to be in mentally to think I, I cannot cry and I want to. So maybe mm. listening to um, a cacophony of sadness will will bring that out i I don't know i mean i'm i I try to think of a situation where that would appear at least at least distract you sufficiently and confuse you to the point that you forget that you're meant to be crying so either way it works you know yeah it's 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 role it's a niche that works so that sounds great so what's that 15 quid a month or something um, it's just a podcast, so I guess it's just on streaming services. The, in the oh. email, the, the accompanying email, it just said on your streaming service everywhere. Uh, just says, screaming with an advert halfway through the weeping. <laughs> it says it says that uh, it streams everywhere that there are tears. Oh, okay. I, so it's they didn't. I'm get Spotify. Sound comes up your eyes. Yeah, it's obviously on Napster. Um, <laughs> right then. So obviously, before we go in, I'll do the usual and uh, see what film title gets generated for us today okay tired percy tired percy blimey okay nothing springs to mind is like if you said to me I'm going to watch a film called Tired Percy. I nothing. I don't get anything visual. I would just think that sounds like a boring title. But if it, mm. if it was Tired, comma, Percy, like Tired Percy with a question mark, I assume that it would star Ron Livingston and it would be mm. about a guy who just has a sort of a low-level job in a bank or something. And he, it's quite a quirky indie film. And it's a comedy about him getting dragged into these completely surreal situations, but it mm. would have a really nasty, violent edge to it. It would have sudden, like, explosions of quite severe violence. All oh, right, yeah. Um, you see, what, what I was picturing um, was like a kid's film. Like, oh, okay. And it would be it'd be a, a parrot, perhaps, Percy Parrot, you know, that works. Oh, literally. And um, he's just a narcoleptic parrot. And he gets into all sorts of madcap situations, but then just collapses into a heap each time. And all this chaos, all this chaotic slapstick happens around him. And, and he's just, he's just flopping around. <laughs> his limp the, body being thrown from scenario having, to scenario. And having really severe night terrors. So yeah. the, the camera would the zoom kids. in on his like, animated face and his eyes would be rolling out. And he'd be, <laughs> Just like total yeah. pa- dream panic, yeah. Really creepy animated shadows crawling across the walls towards his prone body. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
kids say to their parents, Daddy, what's happening? And then you have to explain to like a three-year-old, well, we were watching a kind of zany, madcap, Disney-esque fun film, but then when he fell asleep, and now we're seeing his deep REM sleep night terrors brought visually, which is quite hard to explain to you. And, okay, Daddy. <laughs> so, yeah, it would be quite a mix. Not <laughs> <laughs> tag jarring, perhaps. But, you know, um, kids, it'd, be, it'd be a challenge for Pixar. You and know, Ron Livingston would do the voice opposite. No, actually. <laughs> well, no, actually, you could probably get Steven Seagal to do it because he'd just naturally fall asleep halfway through a sentence anyway. <laughs> it would be like, squawk, squawk. I was chicken and fried rice. Papa Dom's. And they'd be like, no, you don't say squawk, squawk, Mr. Seagal. You, you, you squawk. And then it's just, come on, let's just record it and pay him his rubles. <laughs> Tax-free, obviously. Cash. <laughs> they even pickled sauerkraut jars. So, obviously, I've got a hundred thousand films to go through. Um, but um, do you, I've talked for a while? So, do you want to do you want to talk about anything? Well, I don't think so. I mean, we could start off by chatting about sneakers because I know we've both seen that for some reason. Yes, we yes. Happened to both watch it on the same day, pretty much. Yeah, which is good. Yeah. I think for me, though, before you you do the intro, oh. I'll say like sneakers for me. Um, it was. When I was lived in Kilvani, the really small Welsh mining town, there was a, a a video store there, and there was a sneakers poster in the wall from when it on the wall, like on the outside, from when it opened till it closed after about nine months. And the guy used to do all of his finances out of a like a massive KFC bucket. He didn't have a till or anything, um, and it was called Top Ten Video. And I just remember seeing this sneakers poster in the in the window, and I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's it's almost like um it's like a sort of envelope sort of. Uh, white envelope sort of size image and then it's got a row of of the actors and you've got like Robert Redford, David Strathairn and so on and Sidney Poitier isn't it and I just remember thinking oh that looks really cool I'll have to watch that and I never did until now so I was really excited to Oh really so you never watched it back in the day? I totally forgot about it for like what 25 years uh, and I just re- really remember the poster and when I saw it was on was it Netflix it was Prime wasn't it Prime, I remember yeah. thinking yeah I, I need to watch that I need to put this to bed from when I was like eight years old yeah I mean the cast is really good uh, as you say Robert Redford Sidney Poitier David Strathairn River Phoenix Dan Aykroyd um yeah and there's this bunch of basically ex-con misfits who this squad of they, they they cheat and hack and manipulate their way into organizations to steal secrets. I think they do it as a security thing, sort of thing. So they'll hack their way in and then explain where, you know, their security is a bit weak. Anyway, they and they're approached by the NSA and blackmailed basically into stealing this fabled black box, which will basically give it's sort of a huge MacGuffin thing, which will basically give the user power over everything. Um, connected to dial-up internet, basically. Um, yeah, so they crack on with that. They solve all sorts of um, micro problems along the way, and they settle some old scores with people from their past. Ben Kingsley rocks up. Ben Kingsley's accent. Goodness ben me. Ben Kingsley's hair. <laughs> yes. He has a ponytail in that film. And, yeah, his accent is wayward. It's like an American accent, and yet... Like no American accent, which is spoken today. Um, yeah. So, uh, but it's, I, I like it. It's sort of a, the way I described it um, when we were discussing it before is a 
a geriatric Mission Impossible. I don't just mean that because the people, well, obviously Sidney Poitier and Robert Redford are aging by that point. Mm. Um, even though Robert Redford's romancing Mary McDonnell, who's considerably younger than him. Um, I mean, literally like a year before or something, she basically played Pocahontas in Dance of the Wolves. So, <laughs> which is really not, she, she wasn't very old anyway. Um, but yeah, it's not just the fact that they're, they're kind of older actors, but also just the whole pacing, the tone of it. Uh, and it's, there's never any big shootouts or big, um, kind of action set pieces really it's all it's all quite Ban- gentle it's banter driven isn't it really yes, it's, it, and i was really surprised by the lightness of tone i i honestly thought it would be a sort of you know like a black hat kind of tech thriller but it's it's really yeah. just a really light comedy yes uh, and yet it has this kind of it's weird it it's like sort of like ostensibly a, a, like a 70s paranoia thriller um but it's done in the kind of jovial style and with the pacing and, like you say, the tech of a 90s thriller, because obviously it is a 90s thriller. But I just thought it was interesting that it, it's taking these, a, a, a plot that could have, which if it had been made in the 70s would have been quite dark, you know, in, in the kind of style of the conversation or something like that, would have been pretty dark and gritty. And yet it's so lightweight. <laughs> in in its whole tone like the music my god it's just this like soft like jazzy riffing all the time it's bizarre it sounded to me like a almost if you closed your eyes and and just listened to the music in that film it almost feel like a tv christmas movie at points it was really bizarre there are some really cool moments in it i i like the problem solving that they have to go through is, is really clever sometimes i really like the bit where um mary mcdonald has to they basically need the they need to get a voice print id off this employee of this place so um they need to get um one of the employees to say a certain list of words and so mary mcdonald goes on a date with him and has this list of words in front of her so she has to make him say through normal conversation a series of like specific words and it's quite funny like when she has to get like, him to say passport or something like that. Genuinely one like, of my favorite oh. words. <laughs> and, and she's like, oh, I just love it when I, I just, some words I find so seductive, like the word passports. <laughs> and, he, and he's like, passport? And it, like in a really unsexy way. Although yeah. I will say, right, there's a slight, slight plot hole in that specific part that you mentioned, yeah, yeah, yeah. because... The way they find out that they need to hear Stephen Tobolowsky say passport is by having a really high definition microphone and recording him saying those words in that order. So they should have just recorded that and not made her go out on a date. They're literally recording it on a microphone and listening to it and saying, oh, we need him to say these exact words. And no one says we've just done that. They all say, no, we're going to have to send Mary McDonald on a, on a sort of zany date, actually. Yeah. So I, I, it's it's a really well made film though, and it's like like you say the script is very much it's all very dialogue driven, and there are a lot of kind of zingers in the script, and I like how you'll have you like one caper will be will be going on right, so you'll have for example that scene where she's out on the date with him, but it will cut away and there'll be 
almost like setting the scene for the next caper, if you see what I mean. So they'll be explaining like, oh, what they have to do, what the next problem to be solved. So it's like you're enjoying one one bit of problem solving and it's setting up another one at the same time. So you're, you're always looking forward to something. It's just a really nicely crafted film, but astonishingly lightweight. I did like um, Dan Aykroyd's character, the um, the constant yeah. bickering between him, who is just a sort of conspiracy nut, and Sidney Poitier's character, who is a sort of straight ex-CIA guy. Uh, I did find that really amusing, the constant sort of talking about, oh, I'm yeah. just using this, you know, like when NASA faked the moon landings, and he'll just go into a monologue about it, and Sidney Poitier will just storm off. I, I thought that like was that. quite nice as well, because, as we know, Dan Aykroyd, I mean, he has got, he has got some pretty... Um, pretty kooky beliefs in like the supernatural and stuff like that. So it's it's almost like he's he's kind of a little bit self mocking of his own kind of quite wild uh, beliefs as well. So that was quite nice. Yeah, because he the claims the Ghostbusters was a documentary, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, genuinely, they did write that as not as a comedy initially, did he? Did they? Really? I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, I know that his. I think his parents or something they were very they were mediums or something like that but they, there's a definite belief in the occult amongst his um ancestry and so he does believe in that stuff but he's not i mean he's talked quite openly about it um so and i, I think i get the sense that he appreciates that not everyone is gonna believe in that stuff mm. so he's not some mad scientologist or anything <sighs> harmless fun <laughs> Yes, harmless ghost wrangling fun with Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> but uh, yeah, sneakers is also harmless fun. Yeah, um, really quickly then, uh, I watched a film starring Mark Dacascus, Mark Dacascus, Mark Dacascus, uh, in a film called Driver, which is crap. Um, it was released in 2019, and I'm looking at it on IMDb now, and. It's the cover is Mark Dacascus holding a gun, looking very much like a sort of uh, Jason Statham transformer mode sort of thing. And the tagline is, in a zombie apocalypse, one man desperately tries to keep his family alive. And that is incorrect, because what it should say is, in a zombie apocalypse, one man's family die instantly in the first five minutes. And he spends 85 minutes driving around with super <laughs> imposed imagery behind him unconvincingly. Mm. Um, and it's, it starts, it sets itself up as, um, this is a two minute, by the way, it starts itself off. He looks fantastic, but it, he's a, a hardened um, sort of survivalist in this post-apocalyptic zombie driven future. And it starts off with him saying to a lot of people in his, ramshackle camp with some walls around oh by the way you know we need to do a lot of work otherwise the zombies are going to break in he goes to bed wakes up they're all there if they've broken in the zombies and his family are all killed as is everyone else apart from his one of his daughters and the rest of the film takes on the form of this really boring road trip where they just sit in a Vauxhall Astra and drive around with this awful superimposed imagery behind them as he just kind of jingles the wheel and it's just them bonding um, uh, and it's it's very very boring it's just lengthy scenes of him saying it's lengthy scenes of him doing things like teaching how to shoot a gun talking about mm. their mother and, and but things that in, an, in a better film would be a 30 second montage in this stretched out to 80 minutes effectively and it is just an 
it just there's nothing redeeming about it apart from it's nice to see Mark Dacascus that he still looks great and he's in awesome shape. I just wish he was in a film that I wanted to watch. So it's it says action mm. drama horror. It's more of a family drama and it's awful. Is it called The Driver? Is that what you call it? Yes, yeah. It doesn't sound like a zombie film, does it? it doesn't sound like a no. horror film. It's yeah. it's terrible. Actually, there's an, on this poster there's another tagline. To win the ultimate war, make the ultimate sacrifice. These th- it makes it sound like there's going to be the, nothing happens in the film. It's awful. Does he make the ultimate sacrifice? Um, no, I think at one point in the car he turns the radio on and sacrifice by Elton John comes on, but that's about <laughs> as close as it gets. Is that the one that goes sacrifice? Yes, 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 it is. Yeah, he's added a few syllables there, isn't he? Um, <laughs> Okay, well, I'll, I'll I'll just talk through the film I watched today, which I'm sure you'll appreciate. It's called Bone Tomahawk. Oh, and, yes. Uh, this is on Prime at the moment. Um, and it's directed by S. Craig Zala. Zala? He went on to direct Brawl in Cellbot 99 and Dragged Across Concrete, neither of which I've dared to watch yet. Um, dared but to I will watch, at some point. Yeah, because Bone Tomahawk, it doesn't have much violence, right? But the violence <laughs> it does have is sudden and genuinely shocking and repulsive. Yeah. It's a Western horror, basically. This guy's wife, um, Patrick Wilson's wife, is abducted by so-called troglodytes, who are actually a vicious band of Native Americans who live in caves and eat people. Um, so she's abducted by them. And... Patrick Wilson joins with the sheriff, played by Kurt Russell, his deputy, played by Richard Jenkins, and I, I guess an ex-soldier, I think, uh, is played by Matthew Fox. Um, and they set off into the hills uh, to track the tribe and save the girl, really. Um, Patrick Wilson is carrying a leg injury throughout this whole film because he screwed up his leg. So um, He has such a bad time. He has a rough time in this film. Everyone has a rough time. <laughs> It really doesn't go entirely to plan. It's actually quite a beautiful film in some ways. Like the cinematography is really gorgeous and the whole like production is thick with dust and sand and sweat. And the script is quite lyrical in a kind of Cormac McCarthy way. And I feel that there's really as much here for revisionist Western fans as there is for horror fans, really. Because um, there isn't really that much horror as such till quite towards the end. So it's more about character building and atmosphere and mood and the kind of loneliness of the open trail. Um, I, what struck me this time around is that Richard Jenkins' character, who is sort of the klutz of the group in a way, he's a bit of a sad sack. He can't keep his mouth shut. Um, but he's actually the most valuable member of the, t- of the group because he's the one that brings levity and hope to situation and he tends to diffuse the arguments that crop up and i i like how all the characters have their role sort of thing and i, I don't think it's a film that's trying to teach us any kind of serious history about the old west or anything but conceptually i think it has something to say about two cultures colliding and literally having no idea of what to make of each other like so they're both completely alien to each other um and the going back to the violence thing um i'm assuming that the film was probably criticized for the level of violence but i do think it creates this 
horrendous sense of tension throughout the film because it's so sudden and brutal and you literally don't know if someone is going to be mutilated well mid-scene even mid-sentence they might just suddenly just get killed instantly and it's, it makes it such a tense experience watching it and and also apart from anything like when you think about it how many really high quality thought-provoking western horrors are they they may, are there they must it must be the rarest kind of subgenre really i mean you've got well, from dust till dawn three the hangman's daughter obviously yeah sorry i mean you've got the whole dust till dawn series really haven't you um there's i mean there's ravenous i suppose that's the only one that really springs to mind it's being like smart another one of my favorite films yes with an astonishing exactly. soundtrack you think that like the whole mysticism slash animism angle would be pretty ripe for some freaky western stuff because i suppose you're a dead man with johnny depp not really a horror though is it it's more of just like a mood piece isn't it i um, think neil young did the soundtrack for that as well and i haven't watched that good. 96 wasn't it yeah that's uh jim jarmusch film wasn't it mm. i remember quite liking it not having any idea what was happening but you know <laughs> um yeah, I th- so I think Bone Tomahawk's very good. It's it's quite slow paced, but I, I kind of like that, um, as we all should. And it is horrible, but it does have something very positive to say ultimately about determination, um, the determination of the human spirit, really. So it's not a complete downer, but it is staggeringly violent in very small doses, especially towards the end. It's again, it's a kind of perfect companion piece for Ravenous, really, because now that you've said that, because they're both um, two of my favorite films, really. And with Bone Tomahawk, whereas Ravenous is a film I watch like every year or two because I find it like really sort of hauntingly beautiful and I adore the soundtrack, and it's the film that made me really, really fall in love with Guy Pierce. I think that Bone Tomahawk, I, I, I remember vividly when I watched it. And as you know, I don't tend to watch heavy duty films. I, I kind of watch films to be, I don't like you said, watch films to, to be put on a downer, but because it had Patrick Wilson in it and Kurt Russell, and it was a horror, I was really intrigued and I watched it and I was, I absolutely adored it. And I, I would describe myself at the end of it as just being really drained and shaken by it because <laughs> it, it, it's like you say, it's got this punctuated by this grotesque imagery. And I think up with um we've talked about before the the face that tom cruise pulls at the end of lived i repeat being something that's burned into my mind from cinema the same thing in bone tomahawk the the one of the one of the final lines from kurt russell the way it's delivered is another one that gets me oh yeah i know exactly the line yes uh, yeah it's, so it, it's it's a film it's that not, it's so unsentimental oh. yeah it really really hits home that much. yes that's i know the one that you mean so it's a film that i mean i i know i'll watch it again but it, it's so it made such an impact on me that i'm quite the kind of like monkey island and the amiga i'm happy with where it lives in my head if you know what i mean i don't feel the need to revisit it yeah and you can see why I'm hesitant to watch the follow of what films he made, which apparently even more violent. That can't be good. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can do, which involves dragging something across concrete can be good, surely. It reminds me, actually, of a callback to last week's podcast. I forgot to mention, but there's a scene in that where in American Ninja 2 where Mm. someone 
it throws like a grappling a ninja obs throws a grappling on the back of a pickup and they get dragged around like these oh. horrible concrete roads for like five or ten minutes they would be dead dead and the stuntman must have thought oh do you know what i might just get an office job after this um but yeah it's, it's such an astonishing it's so violent I, I have trouble watching people this friction burns and it's bad enough on the carpet when you when you catch your knee let alone being dragged across concrete wearing flip-flops and shorts <laughs> So, yeah. um right yeah so bone tomahawk prime watch it definitely absolutely um but be warned i watched a slight change of pace is something a bit lighter now i watched runaway jury from 2003 uh based on the john grisham novel starring john cusack dustin hoffman and i was gonna say gene wilder then gene hackman <clears throat> um the, I, I thought I'd seen this film because I've got this just thing in my head that all John Grisham films, I think they just blur into one. Um, but I fancied a bit of John Cusack and I've seen Identity about 100 million times. So I thought I'd watch something else. Um, Rachel Weiss is in this as well. And this is uh, this, the story is, is effectively just uh, about this court case going ahead where someone has gone into an office and shot um, Dylan McDermott in the tits. And it, kicks off a court case where the gun manufacturer is being taken to court um by by the the populace effectively and just dustin hoffman is on the side uh is a goodie and gene hackman is a baddie he's working for the gun company and mm-hmm. he is known for fixing and rigging juries and doing a lot of really underhanded things and dustin hoffman is driven by a, uh, his moral compass so we know that uh, John Cusack is uh, sort of put himself on this jury, but and he's working it to an angle, but we're not sure why. The, it's a pretty light thriller, and it is some of the things that happen in this film are extremely unlikely, but it, it feels. And this this comes to another um, film I'm going to talk about later on, um, Case Thirty Nine with Renee Zellweger, where do you know sometimes you you kind of what uh, you want that you want a generic film. You, you're quite happy oh, to not yeah. be challenged by it and for it to just sort of most of the uh, time truck along yeah and it's a it's a it's fine it's completely some of the stuff that happens is so unrealistic but it's full of such high quality actors that um you just sort of go with it and just enjoy what's on screen and the silly reveals and twists you're like yeah it's okay i don't mind what happens because i'm not that invested but i am enjoying myself so um yeah it's just a pretty solid film apparently there was a lot made out of a bathroom scene um with Dustin Hoffman, it's sort of a you know a, a dialogue between them, which is kind of the first mm. time they're on screen together, and it's a cool scene. Um, but I didn't get the sense of like huge amounts of gravitas. I do think though that I would assume this is around the time that Gene Hackman retired from acting, so I don't know if it's his last yeah. film. Thinking about it, it must be one of his last mm. films. But um, yeah, it's a perfectly serviceable thriller. Um, w- am I gonna am I gonna watch this? Would I yeah, like you it? Should, yes, it's yeah, it's it's kind of light enough to to check on in the background, and you can easily follow it. It's very plain, you know, very sort of um, telegraphed in the direction of how it's going. So if you miss a couple of minutes, it's fine. Don't worry about it. You haven't yeah. said yet that it's so boring; it it will make me fall asleep. And yet it's John Grisham, so. <laughs> Yeah. No, I'm talking about Runaway Jury, not the Pelican Brief, Rupert. A film that put us both to bed. It's the only time I've fallen asleep in the cinema. Like in the cinema, in a packed cinema. (laughs) And you were standing up as well. There were no seats. 
um, um, yeah, I just fell asleep in that because it was it was so boring. I can't remember anything about it. No, actually, how long is this film? Because it doesn't. I don't look at IMDb. I don't know how long it is, but it felt pretty breezy. Oh, it's two hours and ten minutes, but it doesn't feel oh, like that. It feels like a minute. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah. a good sign. Right then, okay. What's next? Um, I'll I'll quickly run through Menace to Society then. Okay. Menace two, as in. Well, Roman numerals, too, for some reason. It's a 90s film, you know, that's what they used to do back then. Um, so this is set in L.A., lowercase g, gangster drama about a young guy who's being drawn deeper and deeper into the violence of the projects. He is he's given a way out, basically, by a young suitor, played by uh, Jada Pinkett, before she became Jada Pinkett Smith. Um but can he escape the cycle of violence uh, in order to get out? So there's a bit of um, Carlito's way or something about that mm. that concept. In fact, it's quite a it's quite a derivative idea, really, isn't it? Um, so yeah, but this is uh, just very much in the African American like gangster community, very much in tradition of like Boys in the Hood, Colors and Juice and stuff like that. All of them made around the time of this great racial upheaval in LA in particular because of this would have been made just after the LA riots with Rodney King beating and all that. So, but the dramatic events themselves are pretty standard for the genre. It's the usual kind of uh, rivalries and revenge plots. Um, and, and I, Although I think do think perhaps the depressing familiarity of it, that all this violence is probably is quite true to life actually. Um, it's I was looking at reviews from the time and it was really lauded as being gritty because it was quite well received. This word gritty, I see. I I I, <laughs> I associate that with a certain rawness, a certain trueness to life, and really, menace society is more of a, a blend of. Okay, plausible violence, but really quite hammy theatrics and over-the-top performances. I mean, it's more more Tarantino than something like, say, Fruitvale Station. That was a a good recent example of where it feels very real and raw. Um, But then this is the it was directed by the Hughes Brothers Menace Society, and, and they went on to make stuff like From Hell and The Book of Eli. So which are extremely stylized um yeah um i, I mean, don't hate from so, hell as much as a lot of people i haven't seen it for a long time but i've never I seen, seen the book it of you. for a long time I, 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 but I, it didn't make a particular impact on me but it's <laughs> it's not a raw film it's not a gritty down-to-earth film um nor does Book of Eli. So, yeah, so the, the performances are fine. Um, main characters played by Tyron Turner, who I've not seen elsewhere, but he's fine as a main character. And Jada Pinkett is very good. And Lorenz Tate is especially good. He's like genuinely quite scary and unpredictable as the main character's best friend. He's really quite unhinged, quite believably so, that he'll just have sudden bursts of extreme violence to resolve situations and have this kind of almost psychopathic lack of uh, regret or sympathy or empathy afterwards. Um, I do like watching Menace Society now. It does fall into that, you know, that group 
of films which i mentioned earlier and there are a lot of them from around that time so i do think it's more interesting as a snapshot of la at the time it was made in the early 90s if not the actual place then at least the mood um of at the time and i think the hughes brothers are pretty good to be fair at keeping things balanced and recognizing that there are multiple factors feeding into this cycle of violence which is happening in the community and yet in a way that the fact that they do play it safe and don't point any fingers uh only adds to the film's somewhat generic nature should we say it's okay but i don't really feel that it is an advancement on something like boys in the hood to be honest so yeah it it doesn't really do enough to stand out of that. It's a mid-ranger. Yeah, it's definitely a mid-ranger, yeah. but not bad. And you can see why they would have been, the Hughes brothers would have been hired to do higher budget work, more mainstream stuff. I am going to talk about a film called El Gringo, starring Scott Adkins and directed by Eduardo Rodriguez. Um, this was, this I watched this when I was ill, and um, I, I was just, I basically spent a few days in bed, like sleeping on and off all day and weirdly all night. So I wanted something that I could just chuck on and wouldn't have to really, really focus on. But as it happened, um, I, it was a good choice because I was, I was sort of disenfranchised with Scott Adkins output because it's varied, quite frankly. Like you've got stuff like, um, I think it's called Vengeance, which was like a really good, uh, gritty, um, gangster film which is probably his best film really and then i watched incoming which was just him with plucked eyebrows sitting in a corridor and frowning and i thought man i want more from a film really so this was uh, released in 2012 and uh, the other title is bad yankee but el gringo works better and it starts off with uh the the titular gringo is scott adkins <clears throat> he is on a stretch of desert on the border between california and mexico and there's a dude in the trunk of his car that's been shot he's got a bag of money with him they converse uh he sets the car on fire with the guy in it and then heads to this town that he's trying to leave but the bus doesn't come until the next day and it's just him getting drawn into all these ridiculous circumstances as he tries to wait for this bus to take him to acapulco um it's mm. a really it's a really simple premise and that works in its favor um, and it reminded me of stuff like um Stuff like From Dust Till Dawn or U-Turn, where it's set in like a, a you know, a town on the Mexican border that's really dusty and tequila-driven uh, and um, and dark, and it's the the plot is fine. It's, I like how it's just he's just waiting for a bus and he gets dragged into these situations, and it's quite it's got a quite a humorous tone, and he is putting on yes an unconvincing American accent in it, but that's fine because he looks great. But the, there there were issues that kind of worked against it because i was surprised how much i enjoyed it considering it's obviously a low budget film but it's trying to do this sort of zany comedy and it was really grating like for instance people keep on saying to him where are you going to take this money or where are you going to go with all this money this this completely screaming hot bartender that he befriends um and he says i want to go to acapulco and every time he says acapulco this sort of mariachi music plays and all these like postcards come and a parrot squawks as if it's like almost like a kid's tv show and it happens about i would say eight times and it's not funny and the film has got this um really 
actually looking at the poster it looks like um a war film um it, it's got this really weird i don't know if it's like an oversaturated yellow glare to the whole film which can be a bit grating but i suppose it does make it look a bit more stylized and it, it mm. stars Chris, christian slater as a sort of, I say stars, co-stars him as a, a a cop after Scott Adkins to get the money back. He's only in the film for like 15, 20 minutes, but he plays a pretty major part. And he's quite a fun character in it. It's just Christian Slater doing his cuffs thing again, basically, with more convincing hair. Um, so the film is fine. It's it's a, a, it's a upper, it's a mid-ranger film, but an upper tier Scott Adkins film. But one of the things that I took away from it is, because you and I both are saying anything set in like a dusty California border town, sign me up. Um, I did like how it made me want to drink loads of tequila and the gunfights are preposterous when they kick off. It's just dozens of people being mowed down in the streets by Scott Adkins running through and just doing like perfect head and chest shots as he does forward rolls and jumps through fences. All good fun. Um, there's a scene at the end where, um, and I don't know anything about Eduardo, Eduardo, Eduardo Rodriguez as a director, I don't think, but there was a scene at the end where there's a car accident and, the two people are looking for each other um, and, and they, they turn around, one of them's out the car and the way it's filmed as they sort of scout around this car with like, you know, a couple of bullets left between them trying to make the first shot. I really liked it and it was really tense. And I thought I can imagine that he would make a good horror. So I may right. look, may it was like, it was quite totally different from the rest of the film. And I thought, yeah, I, I can imagine you would make like quite a nice horror. So I may do some more, looking into him but if you're a fan like i'm a big fan of scott atkins regardless of what he checks out but um yeah this is one i missed and it's a good dusty tequila swigging uh movie from 2012 el gringo el gringo okay just be prepared to is roll it... your eyes at some of the comedy oh, yeah that's awkward isn't it i mean is when you say comedy is it trying to is do you think it's trying to do a tarantino thing where it's like Yes, yes, it is. Um, should just stop trying to do Tarantino, yeah. shouldn't they? Like, there, there's some nice ideas in it. Like, he's got this bag of money that he's really obviously. Um, there's, a, there's a thing at the start where he turns up at this town and he's really thirsty. He is parched and he is just <laughs> trying to get water. And he, like, no one is giving him anything and everyone's pretending he doesn't exist. And then there's a girl who keeps trying to steal the bag and, you know, they keep on getting these chases and all that stuff is fine. It's kind of mm. fun. But it's when it gets into let's insert some quirkiness territory that I thought, oh, God, don't do this again. Um, where, where is this available? You know where this is available. I know where it is. You might as well just call this the Prime Show. <laughs> the Prime Crimes. Although Manish um, Society was on Netflix, actually. But I think that's pretty much the only one. Um, by the way, uh, I w- it was pointed out to me by a, a listener... Mm. We'll give him uh, a pseudonym, Transvaal, that you didn't tell me that in the wedding crashes, there's a line of dialogue where someone says, I think we only use 10% of our hearts. That's awful. That is an awful line of dialogue that would make me vomit flies. I can't imagine how that would have been delivered in the film because it's such an insincere film that maybe it was in one of its momentary breaches of gross out etiquette when it just became deeply sentimental i'm not sure um you're probably retching so hard that you couldn't hear for that scene so (laughs) time cop yay um (laughs) 
from 1995 uh, is a movie about a cop played by Jean-Claude Van Damme. (laughs) Yes, jumps between time periods, if you like, Um, protecting the space-time continuum from nefarious bad guys using that technology for their own profit. One of them is a corrupt politician, so obviously JCVD will have to hop around time and put a stop to him, the little sausage. At the very start of Time Cop, I don't know if you remember this, he's, they're in a mall. He's in a mall with his wife. And and someone, like, there's a bag snatcher. So he's a cop, obviously he's off duty, but there's a bag snatcher right. who just, like, grabs someone's bag and then legs it. And, and Jean-Claude Van Damme stops him, but just tells him to give it back and then just lets the guy go. It's like, you, you're a cop. I mean, you know, that was a crime you just saw. In fact, it's probably against the law, the fact that you just let him go. Anyway. Oh, yeah. And within the first 10 minutes of the film, there's a saxophone sex scene. I just thought, good. Just get <laughs> out of the way. Is, get is out it of a the silhouette way, of Gary Boosie on the beach playing the saxophone or not? <laughs> if only. <laughs> he should have inserted a couple of shots there. If they can't find him, then just get Jake to do it. Um, <laughs> So I, it's a weird one time cop because it's obviously, it's quite, the production values are pretty high. I mean, it's, it's probably the highest budget film that Jean-Claude Van Damme's made, probably. Can't think of one. Uh, I don't know, maybe, I suppose you've got stuff like Hard Target, I guess. Universal anyway, Yeah, that was, that was a pretty big one, I suppose. But anyway, this is, this is, it was quite high profile at the time and, and it's quite, it's quite well made in a way like it feels I like the way it feels like quite a lived in and established world where the people know each other or know of each other and there's a lot of um like um I don't know a lot of a lot of quite easy banter quite believable banter it's, it's a good world building the the actual futurist design though is pretty terrible because the future is meant to be 2004 and it just looks like looks like a future utopia as imagined in the 1960s sort of thing. And it's only meant to be like 10 years away. So I don't know where they're going with that. Ridiculous, like angular cars and stuff. They, yeah. So in this, they don't even bother pretending that Ron Silver isn't the bad guy. It's so clear from the very start. They don't even try and cover up. Um, And he is the bad guy and he's a naughty boy. But I do think that his essential concept his idea of simply banning time travel outright actually seems like a pretty good idea i mean like given all the problems it causes wouldn't that just solve everything in one fell swoop but you know what can you do it's um directed by peter hyams and he made um some good sci-fi films it he did make sudden death I was going to get to that. But yeah, but before that, he'd made stuff like Capricorn 1, Outland, and 2010, um, the pseudo-sequel to 2001. Well, the actual sequel to 2001, A Space Odyssey. And yes, and then he went on to make Sudden Death and End of Days. Um, this is much more in the latter camp, I would say. It's kind of... it's. It's not a completely dumb action film because it has got a bit of sharp writing moment to moment, a um, bit better than your average thriller. But of course, time travel, it becomes hopelessly convoluted by the end. And I, while I did like the fact that, so 
Uh, okay, this is a spoiler. Can I use it? Can I? This yeah, is 20, over twenty years 26, old. So twenty-six years old. All right. Yeah. Okay. So the fact that uh, Jean Claude Van Damme's his wife has been killed is quite a neat way of showing without without using words it's a neat way of showing that that Jean-Claude Van Damme's character won't use time travel um to you know for personal reasons if you see what I mean because the mm. fact that she's still dead and he he's not got her back is quite a neat way of showing that and yet and yet the film chooses to completely upend that principle by the end um all oh, right it's like it's pushing and pushing inexorably toward the most generic ending it can possibly get. And it is really generic. And there's a showdown in this house at the end, which is really reminiscent of Universal Soldier, to be honest, like really just just really driving rain um, and obvious studio lighting for the moon. And but yeah, it's so dark, though, that it's basically the whole final sequence is just shot in silhouettes it's quite aggravating there is there are some quite fun um shootouts and fights in this film he does a lot of quite cool kicks he does the splits at least twice in this film um and there's one bit where he gets on a forklift Jean-Claude Van Damme and he hides from rattling gunfire from assault rifles right he hides behind two red barrels marked extremely flammable it's amazing. <laughs> You're like on a forklift, really awkwardly, like just a tiny space on this forklift, and you hide behind these barrels. Amazing. But um, as as the bullets me, are like pinging off the barrel and the liquid is pumping out, is he like, can you don't shoot, don't? Can I go somewhere else? I've made a mistake. There's been an oversight. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's. Yeah, it's just about you're describing you're saying it's just about okay, but this has literally been critically lauded as his best film, which says a lot because they will love some without leave. Clearly, (laughs) you know, double impacts that that's better. Um, I think, uh, I I can see why one might be fooled into thinking it's his best film because (laughs) it has most like money thrown convoluted. Yes, there's a lot of money thrown in it. And the, as I said, the moment-to-moment dialogue is quite snappy. Uh, and it it's confusing enough to make you think you're watching something smart. But it, it it's just, it never really goes anywhere except a very generic place in the end. What it's all a cover. He, what haircut is he brandishing in this film? Um... What hair has he got? He's got two haircuts because he's got initially he's got like a he's kind of buzz cut type thing, mm. um, and then later to show that he's older, it's like it's like not quite hard target mullet, but definitely Buffon. Um, yeah, is it the kind of hair that only looks good when it's wet? Oh, feathered. Is there's definitely feathering going on? <laughs> That's pretty much what I said. Feathered. <laughs> That's right. That's what happens. Like you reach forty, and all of a sudden you're in a twisted sister cover band. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I'll have to watch it again. Really, I mean, I haven't, I haven't watched yeah, it. Yeah, it's it's fine, and I I made no real attempt to actually understand the precise details of the plot, 
because as I said, it is the tie old time sort of thing is literally just a cover for a very basic get the bad guy um storyline. I watched Legacy of Lies from 2020, also starring Scott Adkins, because I thought, well, you know, I enjoyed El Gringo so much, just give me more. And unfortunately, it was a step too far. <laughs> um, it looks like, uh, yeah, in those those eight years, whew, they haven't improved any scripts. So this is a film where um, it it's quite funny, actually, because... Uh, and this is this is a spoiler, but it, you're not going to watch this film for the um, the family drama. Scott Adkins plays a, a a retired agent of the government and um his wife is dead which i'll go into in a minute and he is looking after his daughter but he's completely off the grid a lot of this is filmed in russia and the ukraine and claims to be in london um and he is his daughter is uh wants to go to school and be a normal kid and there's one point she's british because obviously scott adkins is british and there's a bit in it where she says i really want to start school this fall and I thought, no British person, no one said that. Um, Literally, so, no. that isn't even something which has sort of been brought into the British lexicon. That just would not be said. No. So, um, so he is obviously a, he's a bouncer and he's moving around. He's just trying to keep under the radar because of his shady government past. And his daughter just is like, "Come on, Dad, let's just have a normal life." And he's, "No, no, no, we've got to keep moving." So he gets dragged into his old life, his old life, effectively. <clears throat> um, there, it's not very good. It. It moves around a lot, um, which is good. It's not set in an industrial estate, which is always a bonus. But it, it's it moves around a lot from location to location, all within Russia, <laughs> Ukraine, and it's just the, the focus is too much on this family drama between him and his daughter. Um, there's a scene where he's obviously in a Russian nightclub. Everyone's speaking with a Russian accent, and they claim it's London. And he, a mm. woman, sort of gives him her information and gives him her credit card or something or he steals a credit card to find out her name and her name is like boris yeltsin and he says oh that's a strange <laughs> name is is that is that russian and i thought yes it is because you're in russia everyone is russian so his name's um, vladimir putin oh, is that ukrainian what is that um so yeah it, the story goes you know he's this things in his past he meets a journalist who's called boris yeltsin and and yeah they are they falling in love are they not he's trying to balance all up, this all up with being a good father to his daughter he's not a good father um there's a scene mm. in this film that really tickled me right uh, two scenes really tickled me um one is that you and this is a spoiler is all the way through the film you you see that his wife used to work with him and she gets taken at gunpoint and someone says look it's either you know, give me this the MacGuffin. Give me the give me the briefcase, and I let her live. Mm -hmm. And then and then it sort of cuts, and you don't know what happens next. And I thought, well, obviously he stuck to his job, and you know, give give the briefcase over, and they shot his wife anyway. And then it turns mm -hmm. out later on, someone just says to his daughter, she's like, oh yeah, my mum died in a car accident, and she just says, no, 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 he shot her. He went to shoot the bloke that was older. He just missed and just shot her in the face, and that really tickled me. And it's not supposed to. Be funny um so yeah he has to tell his daughter that she's like why, why didn't she die in a car he's like oh no sorry i misspoke i meant to say i shot her in the face um and it's um I must have cleared my throat and you misheard um and 
Uh, it, does that make the film worth watching all the way through? Just for that one <laughs> moment of unintentional humour. One moment of him going, this is orcs. No, not really. Um, and there was another yeah. thing as well. That's that, oh, there's, there's a really bizarre exchange. It's when he get, he's goes home to his flat and his daughter's in bed and he can see that someone's broken in. And when he goes into the... Um, I recognise this guy's name, Martin McDougall. It's an American guy. Um, I recognise his voice, but I don't know where from. I think he's in video game uh, voice work. So... Right. <clears throat> Scott Atkins goes in, he's sneaking around with a baseball bat, and he sees this guy in his kitchen. And it's an older guy, you know, talks like this, like a real all American guy in his 50s in a suit. And it's this, oh, hey, Martin, what are you doing here? All this sort of, you know, weighty talk. And then he's, then this guy who's in his kitchen just starts having a really bad nosebleed. And he's just tapping this, this tissue covered in blood up against his nose. And the di- And this is what is said, right? And and I thought, what is this supposed to convey, this scene? So Scott Atkins is leaning against his cooker, and this guy's sitting down, dabbing his nose with blood, and then this happens. Oh, so, uh, why is your nose bleeding? Well, I've got an interorbital tumour in my nose. Oh, you should probably get that looked at. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite busy. I haven't had the time. That could get really serious. That could cause some real problems. Yeah, I know. I I, sh- I will get it looked at. Good. And what are you just giving him obvious medical advice? <laughs> what is what am I supposed to feel watching this? <laughs> it's bizarre, and it's never that him having a tumor and having these nosebleeds. Nothing on the plot. Nothing. I don't know why it's in the script. Um, it's kind of inadvertently funny. Um, there's as you would say, there's the promise of amusement, but it's not a good film. And it's only really one for the the hardcore Scott Adkins aficionados. And if only to try and work out mentally where you've heard Martin McDougall's voice before in Dragon Age. I'm intrigued to where I would have heard his voice before. It's always weird when that happens, isn't it? Because especially with like video games and stuff like that, where he hears so many voices over and over again. And it really builds into your mind. Just click on him now and see like, yeah. He is oh, he's in Cyberpunk 27, Call of Cthulhu, oh. um, Mass Effect, Andromeda, Dragon Age, Inquisition. He's in loads. And he's got oh, a very distinct yeah. American voice. So, yeah, if you, you know, watch it just for that. Well, I talked about Legacy of Lies, so now it's time for you to talk about Legacy of Lies. Weirdly, <laughs> the next film I'm going to talk about is has got the word Legacy in the title. Oh, really? It is The Craft colon legacy it's, um, oh, it's a sequel to the Feruza Balk film from the mid 90s yeah. <laughs> this was released late October last year apparently I didn't even realise it existed to be honest but here it is um, it's a Blumhouse production um, oh. but one of those not exactly high profile Blumhouse production I wouldn't say um, I actually watched this on Rakuten Rakuten, you know the streaming, the other streaming service. I've seen it. I've, it's been kicking around since my PS3 days, but I've never clicked on it. Oh, it's a mess. And the reason why I watched it on here is because I get free, a couple of free like rentals with my bank account each month, obviously. But of course, you have to download the app, and it is such a mess. And their pricing policy is all over the shop as well. So you like, it's just they're just randomly assigned prices to buy these to rent these films bizarre like you have some pretty recent stuff which is 
like seven pound fifty or something like that. But then you get much older stuff, it's like one pound fifty, and then there's some free stuff, and it's just all over the shop. Anyway, the craft legacy, yes. Um, so obviously this is a sequel uh, to the mid nineties. When was it? it? Must be around ninety six, ninety seven. Um, Fruza Bulk, Neve Campbell, um, High School Witches film, which was all right. It's pretty decent. Um, and so this is about uh, a girl called Lily who moves to a new town. She makes friends with some witches. She is a witch from the start. She knows this uh, or she's aware of it, but um, joins up with them um, to cause some mischief. Um, and she's also at the same time sort of negotiating her way into her new household um, because her mother um played by is her name michelle monaghan is that her name the one sounds right yeah the one from um mission possible um tom cruise the, the kind of yes the elfish looking lady anyway it's, it's, it's just a bit weird to see michelle monaghan like having like an older teenage daughter even though she is well yes she is old enough um and yes so she is now with david Duchovny, who is uh weirdly buff in this movie and he <laughs> is kind of quite authoritarian head of this new household so lily has to kind of um settle in with this new house and they got he's got three sons uh and yeah so it's a bit awkward but um but anyway, so and she, you know, a lot of her the help she gets in realizing her confidence is through this band of witches. Um, again, there's four of them. It's been updated, I'd say, for a modern audience. It's a multiracial group. One of them is trans, in fact. And I, I think this stuff could be a little bit tick boxy. But, you know, you remember that the whole point is that this band of girls are inherently kind of um turned into they're othered by people they're turned into outcasts so they have this kind of coven to be kind of misfits together if you see what i mean um and in terms of modern audience stuff there's a lot of references to things like cisgender and heteronormativity and things enough to make me feel quite old but also not really enough to aggravate me um there is some amusing satire when they turn this one with their witch powers they turn one guy a real jock guy into uh, like a a really like woke teen and so he's ridiculously nice but also insufferable at the same time so it's, it is quite amusingly satirical taking jabs at um kind of modern teen culture um yeah michelle monaghan as i said is the mother she is pretty bad in this movie i i I like Michelle Monaghan, but I think she's got a bit of a narrow range of what she's really appealing in. I don't think she has the gravitas to really pull this one off when things start getting pretty dark. It The film does hit the same basic beats as the original. So the witches, they'll have fun um, and they'll get like light revenge on people and make them look stupid, that sort of thing. And it's very empowering at first, but then, of course, their power gets away from them. Um and there is a genuinely surprising twist halfway through, so that's cool. Uh, it deals with some quite serious teen themes, um, 
sex and masturbation. Oops. Just the names of my knees, down. obviously. <laughs> Homosexuality, virginity, bullying, suicide, rape. All the good stuff. Um, All so... the seven dwarves. <laughs> um, the main problem I had with the film, and perhaps this is true of the original as well, but the main problem I had is that as the quite soap opera-ish revelations pile up, um, the horror and the witchcraft aspect is basically thrust into the background and it feels more and more as it goes on like a teen drama written for TV. And it, it certainly doesn't help that it doesn't look very cinematic. It looks like a glossy teen drama uh, on TV. And I feel like it should have tried to cover less ground more thoroughly because it feels like it is going through a checklist of teenage concern. It's like it has to hit every single possible teenage concern out Aspect there. Aspect of being a teenager, uh, right? Okay. Yeah, and it's, and I don't feel it really covers any of them in great depth, and and it can't, it, it can't um, marry them all up satisfactorily with the whole witchcraft aspect of it. So it doesn't quite work. Um, but it is quite well made and I do think that the performances are good and David Duchovny is generally quite scary in what is what you begin to realise is effectively a cult leader role and Mm. he's and his whole kind of shtick it's very toxic masculinity type stuff of like realising your inner power and things but in a quite a uh, nefarious way um but yeah as i said like it drifts further and further away from the witchcraft stuff until then it just has a big whiz bang superpowers ending which didn't really work for me um but it's okay i don't think it's i don't i'm not sure it quite has the impact of the original that the original did but then the original came out at a time when there wasn't really much else around i mean i suppose you know, it, Buffy the Vampire Slayer would have kicked off the whole teen horror stuff. But, as I, I mean, the craft came off the back of stuff like um, Scream and things like that, didn't it? And I know what you did last summer. So it was the part of that movie. The faculty is around there as well, isn't it? A few years later. The faculty with Josh Hartner's hair, starring Josh Hartner's hair. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's all right. And I realise that I'm probably not the target audience for this. Um, and it is a it's a lot better than and more convincing than the recent remake of Black Christmas, which also tried desperately to, um, well, again, update classic horror for a modern audience. But it and it also tried to make it as like ultra modern as possible. And it just comes off as a bit cringeworthy and dated. This doesn't isn't nearly as bad as that. And it's much better made. And it's quite enjoyable. It's got some good performances, except Michelle Monaghan, who I feel is a bit miscast in a role. I do like David Duchovny. I may watch this. And where was this, sorry? Oh, this is on Rakuten. This is on Rakuten. I, I'm guessing it will come to something else. I know that Amazon have a deal with Bloomhouse, so I'm guessing it'll, if it's not there already, it will come to Amazon pretty quick. Cool. Um, 
my next film is also a horror, but it's one from 1981 called The Monster Club, not The Monster Squad. Um, <clears throat> I put this on and I really, really didn't know what to expect because um, I, I, it stars John Carradine and Vincent Price. Um, oh, this is obviously 1981. So I, I thought, is it going to be, I don't know if it's going to be black and white or what the hell was going on really, but it turns out it's a quite light, well, extremely light horror anthology uh, with an overarching uh, piece where Vincent Price is a starving vampire called Eremus and he happens across John Carradine uh, on a London street and just drinks a bit of his blood to slake his thirst but doesn't actually harm him and it turns out that John Carradine is a, a famous author called R. Chetwin, Chetwind Hayes and they sort of strike up a conversation and um, Vincent Price just takes him to this the titular monster club where it's supposed to be full of people who are like monsters and werewolves it's clearly just people dancing with like rubber masks on which is totally fine <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> tells him these three stories and in between each story is a musical number by art punk bands of the era and I in describing, in describing that right you might think oh that just sounds like a bit of a mess but it was so it was such a like a wonderfully charming film that and i've already told you this in a previous conversation but when it finished i felt really good i just felt really like lifted and positive because it was such a like cheesy fun celebration of of sort of vintage horror um the stories there's three stories in it and the first one is about this thing called a shadmuck and uh, vincent price keeps on warning um John Carradine about the Shadmok's whistle and apparently it's this demonic sort of when it whistles it melts people's faces and, um, <clears throat> so that's about um, someone trying to break it doesn't become a postman chaos <laughs> yeah, or, or a trumpeter and he um, he he um, yeah so that's about uh, this this weird sort of a Shadmok whistly thing living in this palatial home and people trying to steal from him and uh, you know that sort of thing. The second one is about vampires, about a, um, a family of vampires, and that's got Donald Pleasance in as a vampire hunter. Good, and that's probably the, my, my favorite one because it's just so, it's so f- funny in how. And the third one, sorry, is like about a, a movie director uh, who goes to this creepy village that's covered in fog and is attacked by a load of ghouls. Um, there's a line that I wish I'd written down in the second one of this family of vampires because there's um, the, John Pleasance goes to kill this vampire and he stakes him through the chest and um, <laughs> and then Donald Pleasance gets bitten and he's with these two cockneys who, who act as his sort of vampire hunter helpers and uh, when he turns around and reels they've been bitten that one of them just says right then you just get on the table and just uh, pop a stake through your ticker and be on our way <laughs> Just pop a stick through your ticker. <laughs> just an instant, like he's been bitten. Right off we go. Um, brilliant. Really made me laugh. That's <laughs> <It's> amazing. <laughs> stake through your ticker, and we'll be on our way. Um, yes, I'm glad I remember that line. It was brilliant. And yeah, I, like I said, the, the musical numbers aren't my kind of thing at all. There's, you've got, I think, UB40 are in there, an early incarnation of UB40. Um. Doing doing like a reggae song, and there's a song called "Monsters Rule." Okay, uh, the t- uh, titular sort of song called "The Monster Club," and they're full songs. They're, there's a band called Night doing a song. I think it's called Stripper, but 
it's so kind of fun and like a bit silly that I was completely and utterly on board with it. And I think there's there's something so the way Vincent Price is so sort of earnest in the way he's just saying these ridiculous things about there's a bit where he's explaining to John Carradine how what the creatures that would be created from interbreeding between like vampires and werewolves and stuff and it's just this ridiculous chart that he goes through these preposterous names and I just found it really amusing and like really charming and gentle and fun and I I'm surprised I haven't heard of it or seen it before and I am now on a quest to find the soundtrack on final because I want to listen to those songs again so um yeah this is a this is a top tier horror anthology film but i wouldn't approach it as a horror at all i it's just yeah. it's like a warm hug more than a horror film yeah and i'm wheeling out all these classic horror movie actors is brilliant yeah as long as it's fine. not just dull and lazy but it sounds no like it's, it's just fun. it's quite breezy like the the, the actual sh- um short stories although they're not particularly violent or, or nasty or tense or scary at all they're quite they're filmed in like quite a quite a stripped down nice way you know they're, they're very like it's very breezily told i did bless him john carradine has obviously got really severe arthritis in his hands and that's just yeah, shame obviously he must have struggled with that and you can see it in the film but yeah it's just a brilliant film and i'm glad i watched it and i will clearly be watching it again this is this is one that's been lingering on my watch list for so long um but I, i'm gonna have to take the plunge on i yeah um it's on prime is it yes it is yeah Okay, so that's the Monster Club, not the Monster Squad. But the Monster Squad's also good, so, you know, if you double, accidentally double watch bill, that, then... Double bill. <laughs> um, yeah, both kind of quite light horror as well, so good. Um, okay, uh, I also, also on Rakuten, the other uh, rental that I got from Rakuten was The New Mutants. <clears throat> Have you heard of this? Are you aware of what this is? This isn't this based on like a, a Marvel comic or something? Yeah, so it's sort yeah, of an yeah. X Men spin off type thing. Uh, and well, okay, let's just quickly run down what it's about. This young girl called Danny um, survives what is supposedly a tornado, <laughs> but it could be a monster, who knows? Um, her family's dead, and she wakes up in a facility for mutant kids. She doesn't know what her mutation is. We don't know for a long, long time. Um, the other kids at the facility, not many of them, like five or six, they are kind of freaks as well. They've all got like a mutation of some sort. And there's this apparently quite kindly tutor lady um, played by Alice Braga. Um, in fact, she's really the only adult in the facility. It's quite odd. Um, and so anyway, so Danny has to basically in this controlled environment learn her powers and learn to get along with the other kids and of course it turns out that her power is the most devastating of all um meanwhile it's all building up to a big showdown with some bad cg um so it's it's, this is directed and co-written by josh boone now he hasn't done much but his last movie was the fault in our stars which it couldn't be further from a an x-men movie and b a horror movie and this is meant to be both those things um the cast it's it's one of those casts where it's like a bunch of young people you know from other better films and shows really so including 
um, Anya Taylor-Joy and Maisie Williams. Um, Alice Braga, as I said, is the one adult in the whole thing. So it's weirdly... Is like, that a plot a little point? ensemble, like... Sorry? Is that a plot point that she's the only adult, or is it just... Well... That's just it? Not necessarily. I mean, I, I think with better writing, it could have been more. It's, it's just a really strange little theatrical setup they got going on here. Anyway, it's Alice Braga, and she is... She's pretty wooden. She's always been pretty wooden. And when you consider that, you know, other X-Men movies have the likes of Patrick Stewart in them, in that similar role, it's like, okay... Not quite the same gravitas, but anyway. So the horror element comes in for pretty much later on, and it kind of turns into a supernatural teen slasher, really. But it's not a massive advancement on the cack that was churned out in the 80s, to be honest. It borrows heavily from Dream Warriors, um, but isn't really as good. Uh, and the really crucial thing is it's just not scary at all. And... Because all the kids are basically haunted by the ghosts of their past made flesh. And it's very cheesy and very, very PG, um, I guess, to appeal to a younger audience. Um, Yeah, it it has this really foreboding mood as if it's like a grown-up horror, but without anything to actually be scared of, if you see what I mean. So... Mm. The closest thing to scary is this tall, skinny man with this big mouth, really. But he's rendered with this awful plasticky CG, so nothing there. And there's no tension as well when it comes to any of the horror scenes. This is not it's clear that he's not a horror director. And someone will just walk into a room and just instantly be, be be confronted by some horror. There's no build up to it, there's no tension there, there's no editing trickery to make you feel afraid. And so but in the meantime it's sort of a drama but pretty cliched and a bit drab and there's absolutely no fun in any of it like there's no none of the teenagers have any excitement about their powers they're just treated purely as a curse and a drag and and i just just thought to myself well if you can't enjoy this stuff why should we watching it (laughs) um there's the script is really clunky like um loads of exposition stuff to introduce the different characters and their tragic backstories very tiresome um the the formula is that someone will basically imply that something terrible happened in their past they'll talk a bit then they'll say mid-sentence oh i don't want to talk about it and then and then it will move on to the next scene and then that same character will be talking to someone else and let and like let another sliver of the backstory out uh, it's just such terrible writing, and it's like these. Mm. This is not how people deliver, <laughs> interact like, with feelings. other people. <laughs> They're not how they interact <laughs> with people in the real world, though. And, <clears throat> I, and and so at, at some point, every single character will get like this somber moment to recount their abuse and solidify their victimhood. And I, I can't help feeling that if the film, even if the film made like ten years ago, I, I don't. I think there'd be far less self pitying amongst these kids anyway um when was it so made? Uh, it's very recent it was i know it was a pretty troubled production but i mean it only came out yeah, that, that feels like last. it's really just like slipped out and been forgotten about yeah i don't think it, it there were bad signs all around the production really um not yeah there really aren't many good points about it there's a there's a normalized gay relationship so that was 
nice to see, I suppose, but it's not really much for like an entire film. There's a big CG fight with a bear at the end, a giant bear, but there's no tension in that either because you know no one's going to die because they want to build a franchise out of these kids, right? That's why this film exists, to build a franchise. So you know no one is going to... No one's going to die. There's going to be, there's no real threat to anyone. And, but I can't imagine that a franchise is going to come out of this. It's been released. It, it's got poor reviews. It's released in the middle of a pandemic. You can't, can't imagine it's really going to pick up steam. Um, mm. But at least it is very brief. It's not even 90 minutes long. Really? Which is amazing. The fact that, the fact that it had reshoots and stuff and it's still not 90 minutes long. That's, <laughs> Bloody hell. I suggest <clears throat> that it was, they didn't just need more footage, they needed better footage. <laughs> yeah. We didn't just need more footage, they needed any old shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was really poor. I wasn't really expecting much, to be honest, um, and I got even less. Um, a film that I watched, which was among the worst of this period for me, is a, a 2012 film called Crawl Space. This film is effectively a really bad, lazy version of Hyder in the House with Gary Busey, which is kind of cheesy 80s fun. Um, this film is so poorly put together, and it's, there's clearly just been no quality checking on it at all, that it's on Amazon Prime, uh, which you can watch now if you want, and it's still got the the sort of um, scene intertitles in there. So it'll... I watched it, watched the introduction sequences like a few minutes, and then it just went to a blue screen with text on and said, crawl space, scene one of 18, and then, and then the scene started. And it does that, yes, 18 times throughout the film, every like seven or eight minutes. It's so it's not even, people haven't even watched it before it's gone up there to make sure it's like the final version. It's, it's effectively like a working cut. Obviously I sat through the whole thing though. Um, it is crap. It is just absolutely. It's like a family who, uh, of awful people, three awful kids, two awful parents, who move into this dream house. Supposedly, I'll go into that in a second, and they find out that the um, the person who lived there before, uh, effectively, I think they call, they call it foreclosure, which I guess is like they couldn't pay their mortgage, so the bank bought it back and sold it on to um, yeah. this this family, the Gates family. And it becomes apparent, this isn't a spoiler, that titular crawl space is the fact that the father of the family is split up from his wife and is still living in the attic and in, in sort of the cavities of the walls of the house. Um, it's preposterous. Um, you know <clears throat> you know how you think in, for instance, Hyder in the House, Gary Boosie finds the house being built and just build, builds himself a small annex in the attic and lives in there and and he's tromping around, he's turning the lights on in the middle of the night and because the film is kind of fun you just look past it and you're fine in this film, the guy may as well be literally hosting drum lessons, he's just walking around the house, he's booting up doors he's just shouting, he's making himself food, so this just isn't realistic all of the family irritating the girl is just this um the whole premise is irritating because um, they move into this house and the daughter, the, the father says, uh, this is my dream house. But he clearly states they still can't, even though he got it for a bargain, they can't afford it. So he just like forces the whole family to go out and get jobs and like cut back on everything. He's like, if you can't that afford it, don't, 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 don't move in really, just go somewhere else. Um, and it's just a series of 
you know, doors creaking and people walking by in the background. And it's effectively a short film of like what should have been a 15, 20 minute um, short film to be used as a kind of highlight reel for a budding director, just stretched in a 19 minutes of absolute nonsense. It's just ridiculous. And worst of all, it's boring. It's just a lot of tedious, mm. badly written family arguments, re- preposterous things going on, and just nothing happening effectively. Um, and then it, at the end, it just gets a bit shouty and dark. So don't watch it. It's probably one of the worst ones I've seen in a while, actually, because it's just, it's almost threateningly tedious. <laughs> Menacingly tedious. Um, what, um, what's it called again? Crawl Space. Crawl space. And when Crawl was it made? 2012. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I. So because I mean, if you're going you, you can't it? you can't go up against the classics like that. I mean, Hydra in the House <laughs> pretty much nailed that concept in the in on the first try. You know? Yeah. With no flaws. With literally not a single floral plot hole in it. So, yeah. In this, see. there's not a single moment in this film where Bruce Glover walks through a bush holding a pie and shouts, pie, and a pie, and a woman. So, instantly, I don't care about it. <laughs> uh, these pretenders. Um, uh, and the Counting Crows. Um, right. Bless so, um, Green Street. Green Street. Um, which is on Netflix. I betrayed my beloved Prime to go onto Netflix to watch. Has this got Stephen Graham in it? If only it had Stephen oh. Graham in it. Oh my God, that I just—that's interesting. You said that actually because well, we'll come to that, right? Okay. So Elijah Wood, obviously, is kicked out of Harvard in America. That's right. Kicked out of Harvard because his flatmate got caught with coke, um, and he blamed it on him. Um, he moves to London, Elijah Wood moves to London to stay with his sister and her sister's husband introduces Elijah to his brother, who is played by Charlie Hunnam. Uh, we know who Charlie Hunnam is now, I guess. Sort of, um, I think there's a certain attraction, but not, I mean, it's he's not in David Strathairn territory or anything like that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> or, or Sam Neill, but, you know, perhaps... Perhaps when he's older. Um, anyway, he so Charlie Hunnam, he's a de facto leader of a group of West Ham football hooligans. And uh, so Charlie Hunnam takes Elijah Wood out drinking in a pub and then to the match. Elijah Wood almost gets a kicking on the way home, um, but he ends up fighting with the others and he gets a taste for it. And so he becomes uh, kind of a member of this gang, really. And But one of the gang doesn't like this yank hanging around so he plots his downfall basically and it causes a lot of violence and oi mate stuff the that my accent i just put on is better than anything that charlie hunnam does in this film he every single line sounds wrong he's meant to be a cockney and he cannot do a cockney accent it's staggering of course this is meant to be someone who's utterly entrenched in um london and yet he it's, it, no one says to him why why do you sound like why do you sound like you're from Teesside it's so bad the, the he, is, script is, he is from Teesside isn't he he is from Newcastle he is indeed from Teesside and that's what he sounds like <laughs> um, um, <laughs> this script is astonishing it's 
constant like when it it's constant like clarifications of cockney rhyming slang it's like what stop it and 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 they're always going on they seem to be going on about this thing where this historic english hatred of americans which isn't something i've ever heard of i no. i'm not aware of that as a particular hatred and and all of the other firms in the area all the other hooligan gangs they they seem utterly fascinated by the intrusion of um this yank but why would they care that much it's not a thing that yeah some of the dialogue just really unbelievable real like grange hill crap like this one but where they're like hugging or something and someone comes along and goes oh you look like a couple of gay boys so do people say that maybe they do <laughs> i the only weirdly the only actor in this who i found actually convincing as a bit of a cockney white boy was rafe spool really hmm. he was quite convincing anyway it's so he was good the, the ritual as well wasn't he he was really yeah good. he's he's good and of course and then you get to the territory of whether this actually glorifies violence or uh, or what and and there is a lot of self-justifying nonsense spewed by Charlie Hunnam's character, all about honour and reputation. Um, and uh, But then there's, I mean, most of the dialogue is really just a lot of, come on then, posturing and horribly edited fight scenes, which look nothing like real fights. And it, it seems to be trying to make the grottiness of football violence appear in some way thrilling, like a an actual battle or something. But... Of course, we've all seen footage of football hooligans fighting each other, and it's messy and unpleasant and vicious and not thrilling at all. And and the final act is presented as this principled or possibly heroic act of justified revenge, um, which even includes some ridiculous gladiator-style stirring music. And But it's just another stupid, pointless fight between stupid, pointless men. But it's made out to be some kind of Shakespearean tragedy. It's astonishing. The final scrap literally takes place um, with an unironic soft rock ballad in the background, like for emotional impact. Um, I've I've just got no idea why. Right. So the Elijah Wood character, obviously, we come back to him because he's this American coming to the UK. And why would Elijah Wood, this character, Clearly, he's a studious young man because he's went to Harvard. He's used to that pace of life in Harvard. Why would he find any appeal in hard-drinking, really rowdy antics of these football hooligans? Because it, it's not just raucous, right, their behavior, but it's also deeply ritualized. It's, it's deeply embedded in a pretty horrible section of English culture. So it's not only inherently unappealing to pretty much anyone, especially a studious Harvard student, but also it's tribally completely alien. Um, like, and he 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 gradually builds this reputation with the locals, but but he doesn't have any history with the teams or the culture. So why would he care this much? Like, wh- why would they? Why would he give that? He's got no history at all. He probably doesn't even know who West Ham is, you know. Um, and he's. He's a journalist major, right? So I was thinking they could have had a script device, right, where he's simply he's doing a story on this stuff. OK, and mm. he's gradually seduced by the lifestyle or something like that. So you've got this. He in the film, he is a journalist um, major. So why not use that 
in order to make the story vaguely believable rather than having it so that he's just like, oh, he just instantly falls in love with getting the shit kicked out of him every weekend. And they just leave it aside. And anyway, so yeah, going back to Stephen Graham, he's not in this film. But I think that could have worked actually. Like if Charlie Hunnam had, if they'd realised at the audition stage that Charlie Hunnam could not do the accent of the person he was trying to represent, then Stephen Graham would have been about the right age. He would have been pretty, yeah. And he would have made a terrifying, um, like, main leader guy. And also quite, as he was in This Is England, possibly quite scarily persuasive in his like, charisma. But no, Charlie Arnhem is staggering in this one. That that whole the whole thing it's very well put by the way but the whole thing about um, the tribalism of football and the hooliganism mm-hmm. I've always just found just really unpleasant because yeah it, it, like whenever you hear people talking about it and when or, or you know my uh, my vague knowledge of football it is always presented as you know like is it Millwall and Chelsea the two warring sort of, or whatever it is it's Being always like presented as this like uh, you know us and them it's and you think it's a load of people playing football and you've just created this weird mythology in your minds almost as an excuse to just kind of overlook the fact you're just like drunk awful men fighting when you're pissed yes and and so yeah a film glamorizing that is possibly like so far from what, what i would ever want to see because when i see it in real life i just find it like revolting anyway and the self-mythologizing of everyone involved in it and how it's it's like you see this this epic battle when it's not it's just a load of wankers pissed on shit lager <laughs> it's like yes. i'm not i'm not going to watch that film and i don't believe it and i wish it didn't exist in the real world so i have no interest in it i kind of wish it would have made more sense if they went down the fight club type route of just admitting that it's a, a visceral thrill and nothing more. There's nothing deeper to it than that. And forget about all the honor and, you know, brotherhood and all that kind of stuff. Just admit what you really want to You just get a thrill from the physical, visceral experience of striking other men with your hands. I would have rather that and it would have been much more convincing. But yeah. I'm not going to watch that, Rupert. I'm not going to. And watch that. oh yeah, there's another thing. There's another twist in, like, when Elijah Wood's character is um, revealed to be um, a journalist major. Of course, this means that they're all suddenly like, oh my god, you're a journalist. This means, this means that you're you're an undercover. You're doing an undercover thing. You've you've come here to be an undercover journalist and reveal us to the world. Why? would a newspaper send an American with no knowledge of football to become an undercover football hooligan in West Ham? <laughs> it does not make sense. It's stupid film. And then he'll say, well, it's too late that you've unveiled me now because my article's already been published. And then they, they go, what? And they run to the nearest spa and pick up the New York Times on the front page. It just says... <laughs> It turns out that football hooligans are a lot of drunk wankers. And they're like, oh, he's cut to the core of what we're all about. <laughs> it's not really about honour or anything. <laughs> They've it's, got seen absolutely, <laughs> it's got no, absolutely no philosophical weight to whatsoever. We just like fighting. <laughs> and, and drinking carling uh, <laughs> at room temperature. Um, yes. So not watching that. Um I got another quick two minute. Um, right. Case Case Thirty Nine. Renee Zellweger. 
um, from 2009. Um, this is a film that I, it's one of those films uh, where I've clearly just seen it before. Put it on, spent 20 minutes thinking, have I seen this before? And then something happened and I thought, yes, I've seen this before. And it's forgettable. But it was um, kind of like what films that I talked about earlier on. What Runaway Jury, it's kind of wonderfully forgettable. It's such a stupid premise. So the premise is that Renee Zellweger is someone who um, puts, uh, it, uh, sort of gets foster homes set up for children and then goes there as a sort of social worker and makes sure they're okay if they're being treated okay by the parents and stuff. There's a girl who, um, her father is Callum Keith Rennie, uh, who it, they, she thinks is, the father is, and the mother is abusing the girl, and the girl is just looks terrified all the time, and all finish. She's got these sort of big saucer eyes, and she just looks really shaken all the time anyway. So you can see why she thinks. Oh my God, so, I've literally just remembered that I've seen this too. Go on. Yeah. Uh, something different <laughs> going on. They pop, pop around her house, uh, and it turns out that they're literally just gaffer taping her into the oven to burn her alive. So they say, Well, this is really going to be a strike against you on the foster form, quite frankly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, luckily Ian McShane is there to break break uh, Callum Keith Rennie's jaw. He's quite funny, actually, because he's just got. Is he breaks his jaw against the fridge and then it cuts to Callum Keith Rennie and he's just it looks like he's sulking because he just looks like he's jutting his jaw but it's clearly completely ruined. Um, <laughs> and then Rennie Zellweger through a ridiculous series of circumstances um, ends up fostering this child and of course the child turns out to be not as innocent as we think. I will say the one thing that this film has got going for it is it brings in a supernatural element a possibly demonic supernatural element and doesn't get bogged down in explaining it. It's just right. This is possibly what's happening. Mm. And that's that. And I like that. I like that a lot. So that's fine. I struggled with Renee Zellweger in this film because she's got this ridiculous, um, soft fairy voice. And every time she's talking to uh, people, I fancy like, pff, I don't know, Ian McShane, you just, it's always, He's saying, oh, come on, what's going on? Tell him what's going on. She's, oh, this is, I just think she's very, oh, I just, oh, come on, speak up, woman. Um, and Bra Bradley Cooper is in this film as a possible interest, love interest at the start, right? And when Rene Zellweger meets up with him and he's in a bar and he's making some notes on a, on a notepad and he's having a beer and she sits down next to him, his first words to her should have been, I'm going to be dead in five minutes because I have no reason to be in this film, Rene. And... <laughs> But that's not they actually have a, another conversation. Um, it's two hours long, nearly. It's like an hour and 50, which is, it really does need to be more than 90 minutes. And it really stretches out this thin premise as long as it can. There's a couple of jump scares. The girl is quite, like, as she sort of gets darker and darker, it's, it's quite, a, it's an, an okay performance. But the film is so generic that it just, it cannot lift from just, you know, just going over the same old road sort of thing. So it's yeah. okay to chuck on in the background and you get to see Ian McShane. So I'm struggling to remember much about the film, to be honest. And uh, apart from the <laughs> cooking the child in the oven part and <laughs> the, just the general ridiculousness of the premise, like you say. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, just watch Orphan instead. It's a better film, similar premise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Much. That's on Prime, is it? <laughs> Um, all right, I'll very quickly go over another 48 hours because it's just it will just be a rehash of 
my review of the first film because well, don't this, say this anything. Re- I'll just I'll just copy and paste the, that in review over this one. Literally, might as well. Yeah, it's basically Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy tracking down a kingpin boss while his biker goons, one of whom is Andrew Divoff, to be fair, Good. chase them around town, shooting at them. Astonishing score from James Horner really percussion heavy and it has it was his steel drums period as well so of course around the, around the same time as commando no reason for there to be steel drums in this film it's got nothing all set in the city it's like yeah no reason anyway so yeah it's basically a rehash of the first film i it felt a bit sad really because it could have had an it could have been another kind of lethal weapon type scenario where the characters actually develop over the course of the films but nah it's just they're just doing the same bantering, bickering shtick they did in the first one. Still very masculine. Every single woman in the film is a prostitute. And um, a lot more, more stylish action, I'd say. It's a lot sillier, far further from any kind of ground reality than the first film. Eddie Murphy's not even a cop, by the way, and he can resolve fights by shooting people in the kneecap without any kind of legal reprisal. It's fine with that. It's directed by Walter Hill. And of course, Walter Hill is someone who it's not enough for someone just to get shot and fall down. They need to fly backwards through a window or the car needs to flip multiple times and explode. The perfect example of that is in when in last man standing 95, it's Patrick Kilpatrick again. And Bruce Willis shoots him, Patrick Kilpatrick with just a handgun, right? If a 1950s era handgun shoots him in the chest and he gets yanked through the entire ground floor of a hotel out through some doors and down some steps. Brilliant. (laughs) It's the most powerful yeah. hand. It's more powerful than the cricket in Men in Black. <laughs> Everything explodes in this film. They 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 shoot at a sus. He shoots at, Nick Nolte shoots at a suspect early on. Of course, he hits a barrel, explodes, boom, dead. <laughs> uh, Eddie Murphy uses like a um like a remote key to unlock his car, explodes. Obviously, <laughs> even the gunshots themselves sound like explosions. astonishing like the violence in this film is so ridiculously wanton yeah it combines it with this gloomy noirish atmosphere but also combines it with this jokey nonchalant tone which means that none of the killing has any impact whatsoever and in the end it's just kind of like monotonous you just people are dying everywhere and you don't care about any of it and it it's a pointless film it's a pointless sequel doesn't need to exist the first one was had its issues but it was okay and this is just a a a more violent more stylish rehash of the original i watched a film called american dreamer um starring jim gaffigan who is known mainly as a a stand-up comedian i think um he's kind of a shambling bloke in his 50s uh with thinning hair uh and the, the film starts off with he is a like if it's called what are they called hail which is effective like an uber service and he is um it just seems a bit he's obviously got things gone in his private life that aren't ideal and he's telling people that he does this for like a bit of extra cash but really it is his main job because he's been fired from his other job for reasons we're not sure of um he picks up someone who's clearly a drug dealer and um and then he says, look, I'll pay you like a few hundred dollars at the end of the day if you just drive me around and, um, you know, you can go off and do stuff while I'm in these buildings clearly doing drug deals. 
but you come when I call and I'll give you a bonus sort of thing. Um, and what happens is through desperation, um, Jim Gaffigan's character just puts in plan what he thinks will be a simple, a simple plan of just a way to sort of extort money. And it quickly gets extremely dark and out of hand. And he just gets embroiled in this awful situation that just is constantly escalating. It's got a bit of a feel of, um, Oh, what's that film with um, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx in? Collateral. That sort of, uh, and a touch of drive because it's very car centric, but I believe him as a person and like Ryan Gosling in drive. Um, it's a very quiet film. It's all sort of handheld, very sort of intimate close-ups a lot. And it's a lot of Jim Gaffigan's face, just effectively just panicking and just thinking on his feet in these situations. Um, I quite liked it. It's a very um, sort of taut and tight film. It's an hour and a half. And it feels quite breezy. Um, and it's not a case of, oh, he's just a taxi driver having a bad time. He, the way he treats, you see him treat his, his son and his estranged wife and the situation he's in and the kind of person he is. He's not not our hero in this at all. And right. and and there are, there's, a, there's a certain point in the film where something happens and it goes very dark. And you think, right, I'm not really rooted for everyone in this film. But I was... I was it was so sort of well acted that I was really intrigued to see where it would go and how it would resolve itself. Mm. And without getting spoilerific, I will say, do you remember you said, um, what was a film you watched the other day? And you said that you, you, you're, Oh, it was cop car, which I watched Mm. and loved again, by the way. Um, you said that you were all in favor of endings that are a bit ambiguous, but when it just kind of ends seemingly in the middle of a scene, Mm. you think, well, there's a touch of that without giving anything away, but right. but the, the the lead up to it I found so tense that um, I was on board with it, and yeah. I quite like it. it's a tight little thriller. Nice. And where is that? That was on. I want to say. Oh, hang on. Oh, oh, mm-hmm. Netflix maybe. Um, <clears throat> once again, I've forgotten to make notes. Hush, hush. But. But it's nice to see a mid-budget thriller like this. You know, that I say mid-budget, yeah. low-budget thriller. That, yeah, it never gets this. Nothing explodes bigger than a shed. So good. <laughs> it passes the test. Passes well, my um, test. When was it made? Uh, Twenty eighteen. I'm surprised actually. I'm looking at it now, and it's got six point. It's got hardly any reviews on um, IMDb, and the Metacritic score is forty. But I actually like. Mm. It's quite a nasty, dark, unpleasant film. But it's not bad. It's probably just not mm. for everyone. Um, the River Wild. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm really, really plumbing the depths of <laughs> '90s thrillers here. But no, this is this is pretty good. Um, I remember watching this when I was a, a teenager. I and I had a massive crush on Meryl Streep in this film. But it's also got Kevin Bacon in it and David Strathairn and even Benjamin Bratt rocks up. So I basically fancy everyone in this film. Like. Um, it's amazing in terms of the past. Um, so it's it's basically a story about this. Uh, Meryl Streep used to be a, a, a rafting tutor, basically, until she until she had a family. She was a bit of a kind of extreme sports nut, and um, so she used to teach people rafting, whitewater rafting. And so she takes her. She's going to take a family. Um, as in her, well, her son uh, down the river, um, and she wants her husband to go, David Strathairn, but 
he's too busy with his job and stuff. So it's like, okay. And it looks like their marriage is on the rocks. In the last minute, David Strathen decides he's going to come along and do some work on the boat, on the white water rafting. Um, so, and yes, he is literally an artist as well. So it's, it's a pretty rocky ride. Um, and yeah, so anyway, they, so they go off down the river and things are pretty tense between Merrill and, and David Strathen. And along the way, they meet this um, kind of charming, roguish guy played by Kevin Bacon, who's hanging around with his, who's also rafting down the river with his buddy, John C. Riley, And they seem pretty cool and they need a bit of help. So they help them along, but it becomes quickly apparent that they are on the run from something. And it looks as if um, they're heading for a possible abduction scenario or possible murder scenario but yeah mm. um so it all goes into pretty serious thriller territory towards the end um and all while on these extremely dangerous rapids um so we've talked before about disingenuously promoting female heroes by simply giving them unrealistic abilities you know what was that bloody olga korolenko film where she's beating up oh, the career yeah man yeah terrible but what i like here is that Meryl Streep's a hero purely on the basis of her very credible competence at, at this job. Like she's the only person there who really knows the river, how to use the boats and stuff. And she's also very brave. And she's mm. and when it when clearly it, it's no real spoiler to say that Kevin Bacon turns out to be a bit be a bit of a sausage. Um he's she's quite clever at constantly calling his bluff and stuff and challenging him to protect her son. So that's cool. Uh, the pacing's really good. And I, I love these movies where there's a creeping realisation. Like, we know that something's bad as the audience, and you're just watching the characters come to that realisation themselves. And there's some good characterization, Nothing particularly original, but it's quite sensitively and convincingly written. And, of course, they're just really good actors, so that helps. And there is a really intriguing web of dynamics between the characters within the family, and which is which really gets messed up when these new people come along and start um, messing up their family dynamics. There's a bit of a hint of straw dogs in David Strathairn's character, because even down to the, like the little weedy glasses, because he's, he's sort of um, an emasculated husband who's gradually learning to embrace his masculinity. And there's a bit okay. of deliverance and a bit of Eden Lake but it's more family friendly than each of either of those films. And it's, it's, it's directed by Curtis Hansen, um, who his next film was LA confidential. So mm. he's, he's a good director and it's handsomely shot. He uses, um, this old school, um, aspect ratio, the cinematic ratio. Cause you know, though we've got now 16 by nine, this was, um, this was two thirty nine by one. So it was, it's like it's a very cinematic look, basically. It's not ultra widescreen. It's just it just looks you get the verticality and the width as well. So okay. yeah, some good stunts, some good whitewater rafting stuff. There's there's never any parts where it's like, oh, that's superimposed or anything. There's none of that. So there is a bit where David Strathen manages to outrun like climbing cliffs and like like going along really rough terrain, managed to outrun them rafting down the river somehow. Not sure how that happened. But, um, 
But yeah, and I suppose it's predictable that the final third of the film just isn't as good as what came before it because that is mm. <laughs> standard. Um, it's a standard uh, structure for these films. It's, so in the end, it just becomes a lot of yelling and gun pointing and fist fighting. It's a bit predictable and a bit anticlimactic, but it's a very watchable film. And I think probably the cast really make it what it is because there's nothing really new here. Uh, but it, it's a pretty decent script and a very good cast. I enjoyed it. Kevin Bacon's here in this. Is it like a really tightly clipped buzz cut? No, it's, it's a really long swept back. Um, like almost with a step. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember, there was a girl I used to go to school with um, in my teens, and this was her f- absolute favorite film. Uh, and she would like watch it. I think she'd watch it every week. And uh, I remember watching it, and with that in mind, being underwhelmed because I think I was expecting something that you know would blow me away. But I feel like I should watch this fairly now, again, um, because yeah, like you say, with that cast, and obviously I'm deeply in love with David Strathairn and Kevin Bacon. You know, fresh, fresh off the back of watching Cop Car, I'm very much in the mood for more Kevy, Kevy, Kev, Kev. So that should. Uh, that should happen. I think I'm gonna have to watch this. I think what? it is worth a watch. It is worth a watch. I mean, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon's hair is not. It's it's not the length of like Tremors sort of thing. It's not quite there, but it, it's got that thing where it's like a bit buzzed around the sides and back, but really long on top. But it doesn't have any weight to it, so it just kind of sticks up constantly. And you can sweep it back, but it'll always gradually just rise again. Into Peacock sort of... back up. Yeah. 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 It's an in-betweeny. He's got his in-betweeny <laughs> on. Um, a film that you should not watch. Do you remember that I watched Day of the Panther last time we had this discussion in the podcast? You remember, yeah. I was looking forward I... to hearing about the sequel. Yeah, because and and you said, and I quote, well, Strike of the Panther was filmed back to back with it, so you know it'll be good because the quality will be the same. Well, Rupert, I am here to quash those thoughts of yours because <laughs> Strike of the Panther is not as good as the first film. <laughs> I may go as far as saying it's not a good film, in fact. <laughs> um, the cover, by the way, just makes it look like a horror. It says Blade is back, Strike of the Panther in like these glowing red letters, and it's someone mm. in a Jason Voorhees mask holding a machete wearing black with like a shape in a doorway behind them. It's just, really? when really, it's just a, not a horror. So what happened is Brian Trenchard Smith must have sat down with the producers and they said, right, you were going to make two films back to back. And he should have said, yes. And then they should have said, right. So have you got enough footage? And this is where he made a misstep because he should have said no, but <laughs> he said yes. And then released this film. There is so much reused footage in this film. Uh, like the, the in fact, the first th- uh, twelve minutes and fifty-two seconds are narration by John Stanton, who plays a main uh, main character in both films, just literally mm. recapping the first film, like every oh. key event. Spending a quarter of an hour to recap the events of a very basic film, which shouldn't happen. There's there's reused sex scenes. There's reused training montages, um, and the whole premise of this, right, is that. Baxter, the main bad guy from the first one, 
has just mm. escaped from prison. And the way we see him escape from prison is he literally runs down a road and gets in a car. And then it casts someone saying, oh, he's escaped from prison. So <laughs> did he? I thought he was out for a jog. Um, and, and then he, for some reason, barricades himself in, yes, an industrial estate and demands that Jason Blade comes to comes to like fight him and then when jason blade eventually turns up after about an hour of rehashed footage and ridiculous subplots that go nowhere and like inserted fight scenes in areas that don't make sense there's one point where they just obviously thought we've got there's nothing in this film apart from people talking and shagging we're gonna have to have some sort of fight scene so there's just a scene where he's just walking to his car and just get into a fight <laughs> it's like nothing to do with the plot just gets into a fight on his way to his car um so when Jason Blade finally turns up at this power station at the end, it's revealed that apparently this guy says, oh, actually, I've got all of the best martial artists from the world around to stop you. And you have to fight your way through them to get to me like it's a video game. But I don't think he checked their CVs because they just get just completely dismissed in like a couple of punches. There's a bizarre sequence where one of the ninjas pulls up like an orange baseball bat, does a dance and then like moonwalks off screen. And the music does this kind of like what what what, um, and crucially, crucially, and um, this was a genuine highlight for me, and it could be worth watching the film just for this. John Stanton, who, who's got this really sort of gravitas-filled voice, who plays an older sort of mentor to him. This is not mentioned in the first film at all. In this film, suddenly has a supernatural psychic connection to him. Uh, to the main mm-hmm. character so what happens is he gets hospitalized because he gets hit by a car because he just stands in front of it and gets hit by it for no reason just to get him out of the way and he's lying in a hospital bed really sweaty and like with his eyes rolling back in his head just mentally speaking to jason blade as he goes through this sort of gauntlet to the end of the film this terrible gauntlet on an industrial estate so it it, le- it leads to just him with like his eyes crossed in ecstasy covered in sweat in a hospital bed gasping saying oh jason Harder, fight harder, I'm with you. And the, and then when a fight ends, he collapses gasping on his hospital bed with like this smile on his face. He's like, Are you just tugging on it? Is it edited to is this supposed to be comedy? Because it just looks like you're just tugging on it in a hospital. Um there's quite a funny sequence when a nurse comes in and he's sat up right in bed going, No, no. And she's like, What's wrong? And he says, Woman, can't you see I'm in the middle of a fight? And he's just like sat up in bed. <laughs> <laughs> you're not fighting anyone so that was quite funny but it's there's no excuse it's a shame because um edward john stazak who plays jason blade is a good martial artist but his entire career is based on one decent film because this if you think about his career it's three films right Stri- um dave the panther was good strike of the panther's awful and black neon is unreleased that's his film career so he's you, if you watch Dave the Panther, do not bother with Strike of the Panther. There was going to be a third one, you know. Was it going to be called Escape of the Panther? Are you serious? Yeah, serious. <sighs> I thought there was going to be a joke. I thought you were going to squeeze in some Pink Panther reference, and I would have just no. power cord out of my PC. I wouldn't stoop that low. I wouldn't. I wouldn't tease you like that. Um, yeah, um, I'm probably four, I've got four left, by the way. So, all oh, right, I've only got one left. Um, okay. So I don't know if you want to crack into something else quick. I can. I tell you what I'll do. I'll very quickly do three, if that's cool. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I watched. I watched Candyman, not that one, on Amazon Prime. Um, this Ooh. is about the. 
What? What were you going to say? What? <laughs> what? There is another one. Is it Candy Space Man? Uh, no, Space Can- Man. Candy Man, one word. But obviously, mm. Rupert, it's not Tony Todd isn't in it. No, this is a film about the inventor of the Jelly Belly or Jelly Bean, whichever one it is. And what this is, isn't a horror with Tony Todd um, set in Liverpool, <laughs> written by Clive Barker. This is a really bizarre, haphazard documentary about a man who basically made a single poor business decision 30 years ago and just uh, just talking about it now. Um, I'll sum up the film for you so no one else has to watch it, right? This bloke, I forget his name, I think it's Mr. Klein or something, David Klein, he, the jelly beans were getting really big, it was everywhere, he was like the face of them in the 80s in America, and then someone mm. said can we buy you out of it? He didn't fully read the contract, signed it, and didn't get as much money as he should have. And they stretched that into just a really boring 90-minute documentary. Bloody hell. He seems like a nice guy. I mean, he seems like, you know, he's quite um, idiosyncratic. But, um, yeah, it's just this bizarre documentary, and his son yeah. his son is in it, and he keeps on doing this thing where he, he's getting, everyone else gets interviewed, just camera to the face, and they talk about you know, the, the events or whatever. But when his son gets interviewed, for some reason, it's like his son has said, when I get interviewed, I want to be like staring off into the horizon as the camera circles me as I like sort of play with water in the swimming pool. It's just, it's like he's in a different film. It's like he's oh in um, like a teenage uh, one man sh- stage show or something. It's very bizarre. And he's like musing on his father's mental health and stuff. It's like, what's happening? Um, not very good. Don't watch it. Um, I also, okay. I also watched justice which is a thriller with uh nicholas cage and this is another it's in this in the same thing as case 39 and runaway jury it's just him uh his wife gets uh sexually assaulted and guy pierce walks up to him and says if you want we can get rid of the bloke for you but you'll have to do a favor for us he in his rage says yes you know do whatever you've got to do the guy dies and then he gets embroiled in this weird organization's sort of killing sprees effectively it, massively ridiculous and silly fun um but it's nicholas cage doing an oddly kind of muted performance um which is which is fine so that's just a bog standard thriller and third okay. one, when was uh, I think it's got to be like 2000. I would say 2011 or something. Okay. Um, but I've seen, again, it's one of those films. Seen it before. 15, 20 minutes in, I thought, oh, well, I've seen this. Yes, yes, yes. I remember. Remember this being forgettable. Um, and lo and behold. Um, and the other one before I want to talk about the final one is I watched Kong Skull Island, right? And uh, yeah. I enjoy. I love monster films, as you know. And I, you know, I you get to monsters. The CG's oddly shaky at times. Totally fine. I loved Kong. Um, and not as good as Rampage because it was a bit more po-faced. And I kind of, in these things, the humor's always the most boring part. In Rampage, mm. of course, you, The Rock is like, obviously, someone who was just really charming, charismatic, and it's got a sense of humor about itself. And this is just a lot of, like, it, it's just like you've got the, the military bad guys led by Samuel L. Jackson, and then you've got all the nice people led by Brie Larson. And uh, and then a really funny performance by with John C. Ryle in it, which actually did make me laugh a lot a few times. All it's totally fine. It's a clear seven out of ten. Tom Hiddleston does not yes. need to be in that film. He does not need to be in it. I was watching I, every time. It, it's like what at the start they when they, when um, 
I like how people can randomly die. I liked how people can literally die in the blink of an eye on this dangerous island. Um, they introduce Tom Hiddleston's character as like a crack SAS operative, and he's so talented. He can literally use a pool cue to knock knives back into people's chests that are thrown at him. And he's, he spends the whole film just trying to find something to do. He's supposed to be a tracker. Um, I don't know. He looks nothing like a chocolate bar. No, that's a bad joke. I let that out. He's supposed to be this tracker from the SAS. And he, the, the closest he comes to being of any use in this like exotic jungle is at one point he looks at some mushrooms and says, oh, we're near a river. So, oh, we're wicked. And that has I no can hear it. I can already hear it. You can hear it. Yeah, it's like it's like oh, it's, it's oh, mushrooms. It must be a river nearby. No, I can I can hear the water running. It's it's fine. Oh, yeah, it's over there. I can see it. In fact, I'm yeah. drinking it. Yo, <laughs> yours. I I had to finish drinking the water to tell you I can see it. Um, <laughs> and and yeah, the, and there's a sequence where he just it's an, clearly just some sort of inserted footage where he has like a slightly heroic moment involving a sword. Um, but what made me actually laugh out loud is at the end, right? There's two two bits that i thought come on now this is proof you don't need to be in this film tom one of them is at the end when one of the geeky guys is on a like a downed plane shooting at this thing that's attacking king kong with his huge this huge machine gun and just like having a heroic moment and tom hiddleston it cuts to tom hiddleston and he looks up at this fight that's gone on with these two titans and he says i've got you you bastard and then he just like runs wades through a lot like half runs half right wades through a load of water and then you don't see what he does like he's nothing to do with it it's like was there supposed to be another scene there but he does nothing and at the end when brie larson when kong picks up brie larson and puts her down and they think she's dead she's underwater for so long and he puts her down and goes to walk off tom hiddleston comes over doesn't need to be there because she wakes up by herself and coughs at the water anyway. And as King Kong turns round, Brie Larson locks eyes with him and Kong pulls this kind of unreadable expression. And maybe people who watch the film thought it's him just trying to work out where, where humanity fits into his world. Or maybe he's trying to understand these emotions, this, this weird connection he's got with Brie Larson. But mm. I can tell you with 100% confidence that what he's thinking when he looks back at those two people is why is Tom Hiddleston in this film? <laughs> That's what he is thinking. That is what that ancient ape is thinking. Um, I do like how it never goes into sentimentality. There are a few moments when I thought, oh, don't do something really cheesy. And it never goes over there. I quite like that. I like big monsters. Tom Hiddleston doesn't need to be in it. Yeah, I wasn't a big fan of it. Uh, I thought it was very average. But, you know, it's, but yeah, if you're up for a monster mash, then it definitely gives you that. I remember Tom Hiddleston being, being a bit unconvincing in that role, uh, but now you mentioned that he's also completely unnecessary. That that's even worse. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. Why, yeah, because um, he's not right. he's not a love interest for Brie Larson because no. it's not that kind of film. And you've got the moral center of the film, um, who is there from a sort of humanitarian standpoint. Mm. It's Brie Larson. It's like they yeah. thought we can't rely on a woman. We've got to have a dude in there with like with a tight shirt on. Yeah, but he's not exactly much of a... He's not particularly butcher or anything, is he? He's not like some... He's not Arnold Schwarzenegger and Predator, is he, really? Oh. But, mm. um, right, okay. Well, I've, I'll come to my final final uh, film, which is uh, coming all the way back to Boomerang. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You, but, did you leave that film to last for that joke? 
No, and it doesn't even make sense to joke because we're not actually coming back to it. This is the first time I mentioned it. Um, so Eddie Murphy is an advertising executive and he is a player, as they call him. He is uh, very much a womanizer. He goes on lunches with his like his two best mates, who are, one of them whom is Martin Lawrence, having these kind of pretty American psycho type conversations quite homophobic, misogynistic. Um, anyway, they know all the tricks. Well, he knows all the tricks, certainly, all the manipulation to get women into bed. Then he meets um, Robin Givens, who is to be his new boss and is pretty much his equal in terms of getting what she wants through manipulation of the opposite sex. So Eddie Murphy's got to learn to work alongside her and also to learn some humility, perhaps. Um, and... In the meantime, uh, there's this kind of creeping possibility that he may um, be possibly getting with this, his his very good friend, um, this other lady. Um, so it's like, oh, they're best mates and he's almost like ignoring her sort of thing. She's played by Halle Berry in a very, and who's looking uh, very fresh faced and she's got that kind of easy charm that she can do. And... So it's like, it's almost like you, it's quite clear who you should really be with. Like Robin Givens' character is very, very sexually aggressive and just a bit manipulative like him. Whereas Halle Berry's just, they have an easy, good time with each other. I like that Robin Givens clearly fancies Eddie Murphy as well. We're, it's not, we're not in the tired old rom-com territory of a woman clearly saying no and the man just plugging away until she crumbles. So it isn't that. So that's good. <clears throat> However, because Eddie Murphy and Robin Givens' characters, they're basically the same, their counteracting manipulations just come across as two people who don't really get along and who are constantly disappointing each other. So it, like, there, there's no real sexual tension in their, uh, in their dialogue, in their conversations, in their dynamics. And it's very obvious from the very start that they're not compatible and he should be with Halle Berry. So it's just a question of how that's going to happen. Anyway, there are occasional funny moments. Uh, like I like how Martin Lawrence is constantly getting like he constantly sees like racial prejudice and everything, which is quite funny. Um, and he gets really, really over the offended and over the top way like when the waitress a white waitress comes over and and offers him asparagus spears rather than rather than asparagus tips it calls them spears so and he takes this as being like a reference to the african continent and stuff so that's quite funny that stuff anything with grace jones is not funny because she is given i what i assumed was going to be a cameo but she just keeps coming back and it's really tedious she's like a crazy french model and oh my god it's just this awful accent and everything's just everything it's like it's meant to be like wild and wacky when she's on the screen but i just found it really obnoxious um like the big comedy moment for her is where she ends up just repeatedly shouting the word pussy in the middle of a posh restaurant ay, ay, ay. yeah so there's some pretty sexually dated conversations in here and it's a lot of locker room talk um and the film does very often resort to the idea of being gay as inherently funny so 
that's all there. And I was kind of waiting for the moment when this sort of stuff would be, well, someone, it, where the film would tick these characters off, if you like, for these sorts of quite unpleasant like attitudes but it never does really <laughs> it's just this is apparently what men talk about and what they're what they're like okay but they're not um the problem really is then sort of moving on from that point is that eddie murphy's character he never really stops being a dick and like because quite late on halle berry's character takes him to her school to speak to to the school where she teaches to speak to these disadvantaged kids and like look at their artwork and stuff and he just mocks them like it doesn't he it's not like it softens him up in some way and it reveals some other part of his character he just comes in doesn't want to be there mocks them and then leaves and it's like so it's not like he's some lovable rogue or he's got this unseen depth to him he is really just a charmless sleaze from pretty much the start to the finish and and so when he does eventually change and realize the errors of his ways it's it's literally an epiphany like it's not like he changes gradually over time he sits up in bed and literally says i've suddenly changed and i think it's really lazy writing and yes it is and I'm frankly, struggling to believe this is an Andre Tarkovsky film because it sounds so much <laughs> like everything else from his canon. Uh, the thing is, and given the character that he is, he's a known manipulator and he knows all the tricks and stuff. Like, why should anyone believe him that he's changed if it's that sudden and he's not really shown it other than sitting up in bed and saying it? I don't believe that he has changed. I wouldn't believe it. But, yeah, it's... It's a rom-com, so these things can happen. Um, it can be a revelation as quick as that. So, when he sits up in bed and says he's changed, mm. does it then cut to like a montage of him like hugging people and giving homeless people money and stuff like that? It suddenly does like a, it's a wonderful life moment. <laughs> um, no, it just means that he can, he's better able to persuade the woman who he really loves that. Um, he's changed his ways but really she's got nothing more to go on than him saying it over and over again that he's changed and stuff so i don't know i wasn't convinced it just sounds like something a drunk like ex-abusive husband would shout at a window in the middle of the night yeah yeah that's pretty much it yeah and yeah so i i was not seduced by him in this film uh yeah, so that's Boomerang, and it's pretty dated. Um, my final film is something I paid six pounds, six pounds to watch. Jesus, and that is Nicolas Cage in Willy's Wonderland. I couldn't hold back, Rupert, quite frankly, because um, I was thinking. I, I obviously I watched Justice, yeah, and then I thought, well, hang on, I've seen like the Color Out of Space, Mandy. These, this is good entertainment, so. Maybe this is going to keep his run going of the last few years. And I think it does. I, I don't feel shortchanged by the six pounds okay. I spent. Um, the plot, such as it is, is Nicolas Cage is a silent protagonist. 
um, which is kind of a key part of the film, and I'll, I'll go into that in a bit. But anyway, he has just got a sports car. He's driving into this town in the middle of nowhere, and he goes over these, I don't know what they're called, actually. You know, those, basically those chains that go across the road the police used to stop cars. So all of his wheels yeah. get knackered. He sort of pulls over, drinks a lot of energy drinks, which he does throughout the entire film for some reason, and um, someone pulls over and says, oh, I can t- tow you down to my, my, my gas station, um, and then I'll sort it out for you. There's no cash machine, uh, so he can't get the $1,000 this is apparently going to cost. And then some local Texan rocks up and says, oh, I own a closed-down place called, what's it called? Oh, yeah, Willy's Wonderland, which is like a kind of Chuck E. Cheesy sort of place. He says, oh, it need, I'm reopening. Um, if you spend the night in there just cleaning it all up in the morning, we'll have your car fixed, and I'll take that as payment. And Nicholas Cage just nods and goes along with it. Turns out that these the animatronic mascots from this, kind of in a... Five Nights at Freddy's kind of thing come to life and clearly have some sort of evil demons in them that uh, attack humans. And the film is this really tongue-in-cheek comedy horror of Nicolas Cage being resolutely silent for the entire film, apart from like a satisfied exhalation whenever he clocks back one of his energy drinks. And just him just just cleaning, literally cleaning and mopping the floors and occasionally getting attacked by these creepy animatronic mascots and then just tearing them apart in like really guttural fist fights. Good. There's a lot of there's kids breaking in because of the history of the place trying to tell Nicolas Cage to get out and I thought that they would play more of a part than they do but they, they get pushed out of the way pretty quickly and it's back to just watching Nicolas Cage fighting robots um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and keeping his mouth shut. If there was this film, right? If it had anyone else in it apart from, say, Nicolas Cage or John Travolta or someone who has got a history that we're so familiar with, it would just be a bog standard film. But the fact that it's Nicolas Cage really does elevate it. And it's such a simple premise, really sticks to its guns. It has a few funny moments where you think something cool is going to happen or Nicolas Cage is going to say something and it takes a slightly different path. Like there's a bit where there's going to be a big standoff. And he's standing there with his broom, he snaps over his knee and he kind of, with his cowboy boot, like heals the jukebox into action and it starts playing a song and you think it's going to be some awesome cowboy song and it's just like happy birthday or something. Um, I found it quite quietly funny and Mm. I just like the fact that Nicolas Cage is in another film that isn't awful. It's just a fun comedy horror. It's not overly funny, but it's kind of a cool film and the the music's quite funky. And it's just a simple premise that is Nicolas Cage fighting robots in a, in effectively a restaurant. Good. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. I mean, it can be a lot worse when it comes to Nicolas oh, yeah. Cage, can't it? Yeah. It can go, yeah. That's good. He's just about holding the, keeping uh, it holding going. the ship keeping steady. Run. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but not quite film of the week? No. Do you know what? Looking at my films of the week, there's one other thing we have to do as well. Um, it's the monster club because it does it generally feels like um it, it was it just made me feel good i did like um american dreamer a lot and i did like willie's wonderland but i know i happen to be a big nicholas cage fan and i can imagine a lot of other people who don't like him as much as i do who want us invested in him and want him to be in good films would probably watch it and think oh it's okay meh <laughs> but yeah uh, um so i i'm it's easily the monster club for me all oh, right okay um well I think it's pretty easy. The uh, it's Bone Tomahawk for me. Yeah, it's a classic, isn't yeah. it? It is a genuine like, classic horror. I've watched a lot of very middling films this week, but Bone Tomahawk is it is. I think it is a feature classic, really. 
the other thing that we haven't talked about yet that we need to cover a bit before we wrap this up is the yeah. Arkansas from <laughs> from last week. Yeah. Now I know that um, I, you you I'll let you do yours in a minute, but I realise that um, you've actually been beaten by one step by a listener. Yeah. We'll we'll have to give him uh, a pseudonym to hide his true identity. So you've been beaten by Professor Eldridge Sex by. Because he had you. So have you got yours to hand? Your your link from I, I Sam Rockwell have. to Brian Yeah. So Brown? Sam Rockwell to Brian Brown. So Sam Rockwell had a comedy cameo in Mute, uh, which featured Paul Rudd, who was in Romeo and Juliet with Brian Dennehy, who was in FX with Brian Brown. That was my route. That was your four-step route. Uh-huh. And Professor Eldridge Sex came hurtling in with Sam Rockwell was in Charlie's Angels with Cameron Diaz who was in Vanilla Sky and Night and Day with Tom Cruise who was in Cocktail with Brian Brown so so yeah it's uh, obviously feel free to uh, email in uh, if you've got any uh, any suggestions uh, for these and it's the men who talk at outlook.com and this week's Arkansas Rupert if you're ready to raise the challenge again is Again, using people that uh, I've mentioned this week, you have to get from Mark Dacascus to Renee Zellweger. I think this is doable. <laughs> confident, instantly confident. Good. Okay, Mark Dacascus to Renee Zellweger. <laughs> okay, no problem. Let me just make a note of that. And uh, yes, yeah, so everyone, thanks for listening. Um, I noticed we we keep on getting smatterings of listeners from America, so I hope they can um, understand my accent because I am from deep within the Welsh valleys. <laughs> I, hope, I hope as well they're not too dismayed by the fact that every time you refer to something being on Prime or Netflix, it probably isn't on the US one. <laughs> In fact, it's probably on the US one. You've probably got a much better selection. So why are you even listening? To to us yeah. scraping the barrel. Yeah, could someone, point. one of our American listeners, type in Dudikoff into Amazon Prime and just send me a screenshot to the men who talk at Outlook.com just to see what I'm missing from the American side. Because <laughs> Virtual Assassin with one S was <laughs> charging me four quid halfway through the film was not happening. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that's all I've got. Um, and obviously, if you if you want to cry but can't, other people can do it for you at the Oceans of Tears podcast. Brilliant. Um, before we go, Rupert, have you got anything for next week? Anything coming up? Any any you watching? Any plans? Any series of films? Um, I don't think I do currently, but I'm sure I'll dig something out. Um, yeah, no, no, I'm not watching any feature films at the moment. I'm actually just watching a, a documentary on O.J. Simpson at the moment, but I'm not sure we need to go into detail about that. No, I'm just, I'm just going to watch the Upper Hand, I think, uh, with Joe <laughs> McGann over and over. Oh my god! And then watch some <laughs> some bread with Joe McGann or whoever the other one was. <laughs> cool. Well, have a good week, and I'll speak to you soon. Cheers, love. I love you. What? Don't hang up.